Welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Casting from the Grimpen Myers, it is Bowman and the BFG in the holiday Halloween edition of Lighting the Pipes, episode 11, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Mr. BFG in Canada, Ontario, how are you? I am more than copacetic, uh, Bowman. We have navigated the so-called, as you said, Grimpen Meyer of uh, technical issues uh we've been over the past week or so um especially with the delivery of a uh, blue snowball microphone uh which i thank you for uh, early christmas gift and uh it may just be a gift to our viewers listeners i should say uh in this in this regard uh due to the fact of the quality of the recording that we're probably about to unleash upon the world well let's hope so let's hope everything works well we've had uh, a full calendar week to reflect upon and prepare for this, uh, no, to reflect upon our failure uh, and to prepare for this, which will hopefully hopefully be a success. A week ago, we tried this uh, How to the Baskervilles episode, and boy, it didn't work. So we formulated a plan, we changed some things around, got a little bit more savvy with the tech wear, and here we are back on the 28th of October, three or four days shy of Halloween itself, to talk about what could be argued the spookiest of the Conan Doyle stories. Spookiest of uh, most stories in general, I, I would argue, even. Yeah, there are certainly some uh, elements to it that would, I think, give a, a horror writer a uh, run for his money, or her money. Or that, or probably a lot of in- inspiration as well. And I'm sure it has been an inspirational piece for yeah. a lot of writers. Um, what, 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 do they, what do they call the term? Nightmare fuel. <laughs> Is that what they call it? I like that. I never heard that before. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Well, look, pal, how do you want to do this? Uh, it seems like I start every episode asking you, how do we want to do this? We know we're going to get to our pipes eventually, but we've got a summary. we got publication. Do you, do you want to maybe just really quickly frame this story in in some like literary history context? Literary history context? Yeah, do you, well, feel, I mean, you feel up for that? All I can say in that, in that is that this novel came out in, in 1903, I believe it was published. Okay. Yeah, and this is, and which is interesting because, like, this is this is one of those horror stories that kind of a lot of the the, the well-known Victorian horror uh, novels that we know of, like you know, like Bram Stoker's Dracula, 
uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, even works by like Poe, uh, are all done from the last century. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hannah the Baskervilles is kind of like more of a modern horror story. And if you th- if you think about it, compared to other famous classics of the genre, how so? Um, when you say well, modern. just be- well, modern because it's like 1903. Oh, it's okay. the just purely it's, from it's, a time point of view. From a time point of view, yeah, and the fact that like when it, I'm, I'm not very familiar. You're asking a question here that I didn't know the answer to, so now I'm bu- I'm giving you a bu- I'm giving you a, a, a bullshit <laughs> okay. answer. Well, no, I think so I'm, I don't think I'm it's just bullshit. just trying to be quick on my witty feet there. That's all. I don't think it's bullshit. I think what you're saying is right that it it, it fits. It, it kind of follows the the Mary Shelley uh, ilk or tradition, um, even though there were certainly writers predating her that were doing stories, you know, of darkness and gothic and whatnot. I mean, you've got you got people who I'll talk about a little bit later. I hope. Um, uh, what's her name? Anne Radcliffe, you know, who wrote uh, uh, The Mysteries of Adolfo and, and The Italian. And you've, you've got some elements here of Poe. I think you're right. Um, of Poe, of, uh, I would say, I would say also, you know, yeah, Poe po definitely. Um, and you could also even add, you know, like uh, the inspiration of a lot of the modern horror that occurred in the previous decade. All those little stories that you would pick up for like a penny, you know, in in, in the uh, in the printed press, or they would publish like in all these little magazines, like the Strand, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and s- some of them good quality, and some of them just just kind of very adolescent in concept, you know, and uh, catering to a lower brow audience in that respect. But uh, uh, it would be interesting to kind of look at Hand of the Baskervilles. Uh, as part of that like horror genre, but kind of late in that period, if you, if if I'm to make a, an assumption. What was your first uh, experience, encounter, exposure to this story? I believe I tried to read it back in high school, and I never really got a chance to. I was I heard so much about it, you know, and um, for some reason I thought it was much more supernatural. When I read, when I heard, when I, when I heard about it, that there were, there was actually a supernatural context to it, but um, that turned turned out to be the case, of course. But I always consider it as kind of like one of the the one of the famous Sherlock Holmes stories, and on top of that, a, a kind of like a supernatural kind of uh, uh, horror anthology. So was it like were you a kid, like a, a really young young guy when you read this? No, no. The, the the novel itself, I only read a couple of years ago. Okay, right. So it's not a school text for you. No, it definitely wasn't a school text. I read The Sign of Four in high school, but uh, that, was, that, was, that was my only experience with Sherlock Holmes and the literary matter until like past couple of years. Okay, cool. I, I didn't read it um, as a younger guy. I didn't read it really as, a, as an older person either. Um, it was really just this project that, that made me read it for the first time, but I'd heard about it. And I was aware of adaptations, be they, uh, you know, filmic or, or otherwise, cinematic mm. rather. I mean, I, I just, some good, some bad. Well, I haven't seen them all. I've seen a couple since now, um, since finishing the text. I, wrought, I watched uh, Peter Cushing's Hammer Horror adaptation of it, the one with Christopher Lee. As, oh, uh, I never saw that one. I, that's I, worth I, watching, I, man. That is worth watching. There's some, there's some real good features to Peter Cushing's Sherlock Holmes. I, I, I can quite, see that. He, it, he yeah. seems... He seems to uh, be the type of it, you know. Everyone he gets a bad reputation, you know, of being like a horror kind of guy, and uh, in, of course, if, from popular culture, everyone knows that he was Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars, um, who's kind of like the 
villain of the movie even uh, even more so than Darth Vader was, you know, mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah. And I saw I remember seeing a video of him recently. Um, just it was, uh, and he was being interviewed by the BBC or something, and they, they like were invited into his home, and he was wearing slippers and. And he was sitting in the bathrobe, and he was having an interview and talking about making Star Wars and everything. And he's such a—he's such like a, like a, he's like a kindly old gentleman, you know. When they spoke to him and stuff, and uh, it, was, it was if you ever can find the video of them in, interviewing him and talking about how because he wasn't very comfortable in the in, in the boots that Imperial officers wore in the film. He basically wore slippers almost the entire time in almost every scene. So when he's threatening Princess Leia, you know, with destroying her <laughs> home planet and all that kind of stuff, he was wearing slippers on set. That's why you never see him get uh, the camera never goes above the waist. And it's it's if you ever can see the video on 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 YouTube, uh, the interviewing Peter Cushing about Star Wars, I recommend it. It's uh, quite a treat. That's funny. It is funny, isn't it? Just to think of, and I mean that that just brings to mind all of those, um, you know. Uh, apocryphal stories of newscasters in their underwear with a, just a suit top on and that kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it, it kind of does, but we're getting off track. It's just to say yeah. that the, uh, the, the the Peter Cushing adaptation from 1954, I want to say, or maybe 59 or something, somewhere around there, it's really, really good. I picked it up on the recommendation of, I, I think in an earlier episode, I told you about this this lady I work with, um, this pal of mine who is a big Sherlock buff, and she like like you know has read all the stories and she does the cosplay stuff and right she, she's really cool into it and i had i had sent her a message just to say look you know i've i've seen the um jeremy brett adaptation and obviously the the butchered uh, bbc sherlock adaptation uh, and h-o-u-n-d of yeah. baskerville <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i'd asked you know what uh what other adaptations are out there that you'd recommend and uh she instantly said, well, you know, if, if, if you're wanting something old school, go for the Rathbone one. But she said, my favorite, just because of the kind of horror elements that seem to come out of the book, because mm. they, they don't really come out of the, they don't really come out of the BBC, or sorry, the um, the ITV Granada, Jeremy Brett adaptation is quite as, quite as pronounced as I would have liked to see, to be honest. But the, the mm. Hammer, the Hammer film is, they're still cutting their teeth back then in the 50s and it, it really, really worked. So it, it's a good treat and I'd recommend it. I'll, 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 I will check. I will check it out. Uh, the Hammer films have always been uh, fascinating to me, so it would be. Uh, I think it would be. A, it would be a good time just, just to see in comparison, especially to like to, to the Rathbone version. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, even, well, even the Rathbone one isn't really scary per se, but it's very well filmed and shot, and and Rathbone is very a charismatic figure on screen. So I recommend p- people. Who read the book? There's a couple of changes they make in the uh, film version, uh, but uh, it's very, very faithful. Um, so they're both versions are good. But uh, I think we can agree: stay away from the uh, Sherlock series, uh, Hound of the Baskervilles. Yeah, it's very, very poor, isn't it? Like, yeah. Anyway, and just considering, you know, I watched it again recently, and uh, the, how like the one, of, like they use the names of some characters in the story, like Stapleton, for example. And there's totally like a red herring that they don't even really use in any kind of connection to the book in any fashion. So I, I was surprised how much they changed it in the adaptation. Um, as that show kind of went went on and on and on um, in, in a way that it did, uh, it kind of went off the rails in many ways in terms of uh, being faithful to the source material. Well, it, and it's a further disappointment. You're absolutely right because of the way that show came out of the gate when it first appeared. You know, I mean, it, it was really, really fresh, really exciting, uh, a neat interpretation. And then you take that classic tale and modernize slash computerize slash roboticize it to within 
a silly inch of what it used to be, you know? Yeah, it's almost like as you I think you mentioned it almost it almost ended up being a sort of almost like a uh, a Mission Impossible or Spooks kind of spy series by the end of it. I didn't know what what I didn't know what was going on in terms of the adaptation. Um and to me it it feels like you know and also how how infrequent the episodes were appearing right there would be like two year gaps between seasons completely yeah, yeah. i guess because cumberbatch and and freeman were off being you know hobbits or dragons or 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 <laughs> or, or, or marvel superheroes or whatever that they had to fit the time in when they could right and the writers just kind of just filled in the gaps and gave them little stories to do but uh, i don't know it's kind of it's kind of sad what that show ended up being and uh, I guess we're kind of taking a controversial stance here because I think we're both in agreement that like that series started kind of strong as a modern adaptation and it just kind of fell on its face at the end. Yeah, it really did. But we're yeah. not here to review that. We're here to no, talk we're about not. the Hound of the Baskervilles. And uh, I, I'm excited. I, I hope to Christ that the, um, the Grimpenmeyer environment of the story doesn't uh, metamorphosize into or metamorphose into... Uh, what we're trying to do here today, because although we punned about it at the beginning, we we need a bit of luck on our side. We got a great show lined up. I'm uh, I'm hoping technology cooperates and that this transatlantic communique can uh, can be one of our best yet. Yeah, I think I think I think hopefully everything is going to work s- smoothly. You know, as you said, the grip and mire will be navigated, and uh, as long as we have Cartwright coming with the things that we need to get things done, we'll be okay. Right. Okay. Well. Um, <clears throat> Shall we start with some publication information, or do you want to do a plot summary? What, what, what would you like first? When you said publication information, the rhyming of that reminded me of uh, Adam Sandler's Opera Man on Saturday Night Live for some reason. I'm just picturing you going, uh, no, no, not uh, Opera Man. What was it? Cajun Man or whatever. Oh, yeah. like, information. Yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah. So, let's start with that. Uh, it's kind of... Uh, do I have to perform it? Do I have to perform it like that way? No, please don't. Okay. I, I I don't. I, I've come to come to terms that uh, recently that Adam Sandler is not great, and back in the day, uh, even then, he wasn't great either. So let's continue. No problem. The Hound of the Baskervilles, August nineteen o one to April nineteen o two, published monthly in parts in the Strand Magazine. Curiously, though, uh, the first book edition was published in 1902, just before the final Strand installment. So you're thinking that uh, in March of 1902, the book comes out, but in April, the last installment of the Strand Magazine comes out. So there's a bit of a, kind of a, a delay there, but interesting. In America, the first edition was published in 1902 by McClure, Phillips, and Company. Uh, I've got some more detailed information on the publication of the story I'll share with you now. This stuff is pretty cool, particularly the uh, the information about where the story came from. Um, mm. At least I, I thought it was interesting. Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> in 1901, our friend ACD, Conan Doyle himself, is down in Devon, uh, back from a honeymooning type or a hol- honeymooning anniversary type holiday with his wife. Uh, and he's... he's Hanging out with this guy, Bertram Fletcher Robinson, who was a young journalist that he met on the way back from the Boer War uh, from South Africa. And basically, the guys are just hanging out there, um, playing golf, drinking beers, talking ladies, you know, the way guys probably will, or heterosexual guys at least, Mm -hmm. Uh, staying at the Royal Lynx Hotel in Cromer, Norfolk. Robinson starts to share these stories with 
Conan Doyle, you know, a lot of time spent on the golf course, you know, you're, you're just having a, a leisurely game, so you're probably talking about what's going on. And Robinson's letting him know about the land and kind of the, the place that he's from and some legends from the area. And one of these legends that he, he shares with uh, Doyle is about a hound which terrorized inhabitants of Dartmoor. Oh. Um, and now, after his experiences in the Veld, Doyle was pretty familiar with environments that were like Dartmoor and the Moors, you know, quite vast, inhospitable expanses of, of land. And I, th- I guess that he, he was quite in- encouraged by his experiences and by what his pal was telling him to, to dig a little deeper into this, this story. And so Robinson certainly uh, delivered on that. He was really motivated by the stories and quite excited that even before he had left this leg of his trip, he had written to his mother indicating his intentions to write a creeper, so-called, uh, called The Hound of the Baskervilles. But he was going to write it with this guy, Fletcher Robinson. Uh, Even so, a little point on that, a lot of people don't know, is that one of the people who was really upset with Sherlock Holmes's death and the cessation of the stories for us for so long was his mother. She mm-hmm. was a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. She was. And uh, so she must, she must have been very excited, you know, as ill as she was probably at the time. You know, I think she was living in the sanitarium or or – or just had been, and uh, you can imagine her excitement. You know when Arthur when when little Arthur comes home and says, "I'm going to bring Sherlock Holmes back." I'm uh, sure there was some some celebrating in the household. There would have been when that was when that was made known, but it wasn't, or it didn't necessarily start out as a Sherlock Holmes story. That decision came That's a right. little bit later. That came a little bit later. Uh, he was writing to the Strand Magazine and. Uh, in, in his communications with the publisher, he promised no less than 40,000 words, but he insisted that the story, while it would still be in his direction and style, right, it would have to be uh, featuring Robinson's name as a co-author because he lent the inspiration and he provided the, the local color, flavor, mythos, whatever. Uh-oh, Bas- are we getting into Kevin McClory and Fleming territory here? <laughs> I don't know. We could be. But uh, it was a little bit more amicable than that. Um Baskerville actually was the name of Robinson's family coachman, and so he actually gave him a little nod to that. Oh, that's anyway, nice of him. Yeah, it was kind of uh, to be Conan, associated with like a a, um, a, like a, a, a murderer and his cre- and his uh, scary looking dog and yeah. <laughs> and uh, sinister you know m- motivations for you know g- g- getting back I guess the control of his family and and and. And possibly trying to bring out a regime that was not too ple- pleasant. Well, hey, there's no there's no such thing as bad press, is there? There is no, no, that, not really, unless you're uh, Trump. Oh, wait, no, he has great press. So, yeah, you're That's absolutely right. right. Continue. <laughs> uh, Conan Doyle negotiated a real healthy princely sum for this: a uh, hundred pounds per thousand words. Now, if we're estimate, wow. if we're estimating a forty thousand word story. That's approximately uh, 465,000 pounds in today's money. So you're nearing a million dollars just for this book. And although the Strand editor, uh, Greenhouse Smith, wasn't overly keen on Doyle's request to share authorship, uh, Doyle was really faithful to Robinson for this and oh, managed... So not a Kevin McClory in McClory no, situation. No, no, not at all. He managed to squirrel money out for him even though the dedication is all that was kind of agreed upon at the end of the day inside the book it says you know i couldn't have written this without my pal blah blah or it doesn't actually say that but it's words to that effect you know what i mean um but he managed to pay him 
he uh, he paid him approximately 58,000 pounds in today's money. It's 500 pounds back then. So about 100 grand in the latter part of 1901. And Conan Doyle's bank account does indeed show him paying Robinson this sum of money. And that's not just the type of money you're going to dump on somebody for a nice holiday, you know? Yeah. That's that very kind of Scott, Scott's kind of, you know, strong moral work ethic at, at hand there, eh? That could uh, be. Could be. Giving everyone a fair shake. Hmm. Well... In March, two, uh, March 1902, 25,000 copies are selling at or are printed and sell at six shillings, which is 72 pence at the time. In today's money, it's about $28 or 17 pounds, if you're thinking of it. And that's about what you would expect to pay, you know, plus or minus a bit for a new book. In April, the following month, an extra 15,000 copies are released for British colonies and for India. And on April 15th, two weeks later, 70,000 copies are printed for the American edition, American first edition. The book, wow. the story was such an enormous success, BFG, that not only did The Strand go to a seventh printing for the first and only time in its history, but Collier's, huh. Collier's Weekly in the USA offered an obscene amount of money for news stories, and so Doyle delivered. Sherlock Holmes comes back to life. And the public are happy. They they drop those black armbands from their morning <laughs> period, and uh, hey, people are happy, kind of. And, There's still and, a, and still then a little bit of and, and then the Strand and Harper's Bazaar get more get back the subscribers they lost, I suppose. That's right. Uh, although Doyle was writing for the Strand, bits and pieces here and there, little stories of this, little stories of that, but no, no not nothing, the same thing. <laughs> nothing, nothing like that at all. And uh, well, basically. There was still a little bit of upset regarding the fact that this was a retrospective instead of a news story explaining what happened to Holmes at the Reichenbach Falls, but we'll get to that. It's one of those like flashback episodes. That's the way how, how, how you could look at it chronologically. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, it's uh, well, so much of the canon is written that way, isn't it? It's very much so. In terms of reviews, um, there was a lot of critical acclaim for this novel uh, at the time, and still today, it's regarded as one of, if not Conan Doyle's best uh, Sherlock Holmes story. I consulted a number of sources, the, liter the Literary Omnivore, the New York Times, uh, The Guardian, Goodreads, Teen Inc., and Love Reading for Kids, two sources which uh, latterly state this to be one of the best books for kids. I'm not quite sure about that yet, but uh, Interesting. regardless, all above that it, or all agree that it's, it's a great story, and Goodreads is... Goodreads is, yeah. The Goodreads median of <laughs> 4.1 is the highest score average for any of the stories that we've reviewed thus far and we've discussed. Ooh. So we're Even dealing Goodreads with Goodreads is cashing in on this. Uh, we're dealing with a story that a lot of people like, my friend, and um, that's what it is. And that's what did uh, what what's is. your name? Our, our mistress of teacups, or what's her name called? Uh, Oh, Cora, uh, the tea Cora, princess. Cora, yes. Yeah. What, what, what did Cora princess. think of the story? I'm, I'm dying know. to know. I don't know. My guess is that perfect length for a cuppa. Am I, that's my guess. I'm just, I'm just that, putting that out there. That's that's just a stab in the dark, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll go with you on that. 50-50. 50-50. Yeah, so that that's where we are, and that's publication history done. And now we're going to get ready for your brilliant plot summary. Okay, well, plot summary time. There's the hound baying for you, BFG. 
Thank you for setting the stage there. Quite happy. Pre- previously on Sherlock Holmes, we've cued the Willem scream, curse splash, thousands of fans wearing black armbands, the Commonwealth in America, nay, the literary Western world in mourning, Strandstock plummeting Reichenbach style as subscriptions are canceled. And eight years later, 221B Baker Street, Dr. John Watson examines a walking stick of some kind. Has the good doctor continued his great late friend's mantle? Has he himself become a master of deduction? Nah, not really. He makes some decent observations on the walking stick. But Sherlock Holmes is alive. Time travel, I assume. Nevertheless, our hero is alive and well, and just as borderline asshole as ever. <laughs> Praising Watson for all of his deductions, only to pull the rug out from his, from us in his typical fashion. Good show, old boy. Really, it was. But you, it, it, good show, old boy. Really, it was. But you are still a blockhead as usual. Uh, that whole line about, uh, you know, you are a conductor of light because you, by being so uh, unobservant and erroneous in, in your findings, this makes me, my this this makes me able to see what you're missing and. And as long as you're, you know, a, a complete dunderhead around me, then I'll be able to solve any crime. <laughs> so we learn now that Watson is like cocaine to Holmes. He needs him to solve cases. <laughs> that was my little analogy there. So while they discuss this cane, and this cane, by the way, is left by is left by its owner, James, Doctor James Mortimer. Uh, Mort. There's a pitcher patcher on the front door and a, and a spaniel at the door with Dr. Mortimer, who enters. Now, Dr. James Mori, Mortimer, I know it's not as exciting as Moriarty, enters the back cave to retrieve his walking stick and tell Sherlock Holmes, of all people, a spooky story about the late, 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 even deader than, than Sherlock himself, Sir Hugo Baskerville, who during Cromwell's failed little re- Republican experiment was quite a psychotic Tim Roth and Rob Roy style fop who had the worst misogynist frat house party imaginable that led to a pretty poor young maid getting caroused to the point of fleeing for her life on the moors of Devonshire and pursued like the target of a fox hunt by the evil Sir Hugo with his mates galloping behind him. Oh yeah, that just to interject, uh, getting back to that recommendation for the Peter Cushing, uh, the Hammer Baskervilles adaptation, that scene, right? that scene is wild. It's crazy at the beginning. Like they've got this guy and it, it's not re- referenced in the story at all, but they've got this guy that they're throwing into a moat and then they launch him before a, a fire and then they end, I don't know how they end up killing him, but he's just nuts. Like, really, really weird. Everybody is raucous and every, but they're all quite like, they're all quite gentlemen as well. You know, the the book tries to, or I think succeeds in painting them a little bit more savage than than the kind of, you know, English gentleman type. I see. But uh, I can definitely see Hammer horror making stock out of that uh, all that horror Im- imagery. Like it's it's uh, very ripe fruit. You know what I mean? Yeah, very much. So for the culmination of this old manuscript, uh, we have this cadre of douches finding Sir Hugo mauled by a phantom dog and the girl dead from exhaustion. Pretty cool, huh? Says Doctor Mortimer. But Holmes is like to a teller of fairy tales. And then I'm and then and, and then I'm like motherfucker. I'm still waiting to see how you survive the plummet from a waterfall with your arch nemesis and all. And then uh, you all up in Doctor Mortimer shit. You know, like yeah. fairy tales. Yeah, okay, whatever. That's uh, you, you and the rest of um, you and the rest of society. Exactly, but Mortimer brings some actual relevance to the proceedings when he informs our dynamic duo that Sir Charles Baskerville, 
Uh, the descendant of the same Duchy Sir Hugo Baskerville of yore has been found dead of a heart attack at his estate in Dartmoor. Holmes is much more interested in these facts, of course, especially that, that of the paw print that Mortimer, the personal physician of Sir Charles, by the way, cited at the scene of Charles' death. You see, the locals have been fired up with the sound of howls along the moor, oh, and the sight of some special hound to boot. So more of a scully than a molder, but with some moldery obsession at finding the truth, the great rationalist has become intrigued with this case. Sir Charles, the next of kin, Sir Henry Baskerville, who went off to America and eventually Canada to make a fortune, uh, is, is, on his way to, is on his way to London at the news of his uncle's passing. So Mortimer wants Holmes to look into how Sir Charles was literally scared to death, even taking into account the supernatural, uh, the supernatural based on the sound of the hound baying on the moor, as well as the shepherds and gypsies in the area, citing said creature if those accounts are to be believed. Right, says Holmes. But he understands Mortimer wants to assure the soon-to-be-arriving Sir Henry that he is not in danger. And if he were to take up his uncle's seat at Dartmoor, you know, this threat has to be wiped away, this uh, this whole specter of uh, doubt, if, if you will. Brushing aside the fact that Mortimer sees him as the second-best detective-slash-genius in the world, Holmes accepts the case. I found that a really funny scene, actually, where... Uh, Holmes is all pissy about uh, this that uh, more more wanted to go see this this guy in France who was like ten times better at the at deduction than he was apparently. Yeah, that that is a neat scene, isn't it? He, he's he's he is quite pissy about it. Yeah, I could see Brett playing that off pretty well. Yeah. Um, Sir Henry arrives in London soon after, and Mortimer arranges a meeting between the young baronet and Holmes and Watson. Sir Henry delivers unto Holmes what is probably the first serial killer letter to send to the police in existence. A warning for Sir Henry to stay his, stay his ass out of Dartmoor, cut and pasted with newspaper cuttings. Adding on this, Sir Henry has lost a boot and, would, and is later tailed by a mysterious cloaked and bearded man via handsome cab. When Holmes catches on to this, he tracks down the handsome driver and learns that the bearded man said his name was Sherlock Holmes. Now that's a plot twist. Indeed. And Holmes is intrigued, obviously. He's intrigued, Holmes he's intrigued but he doesn't like it. He, yeah, he's intrigued, but at the same time, he's kind of like, oh boy. Because automatically, he's already telling Watson, he's like, there's some sinister shit going on here. Yeah. Holmes leaves Watson to escort Sir Henry to Dartmoor to ensure his safety via the former military man. Because he has some blackmail case he has to look into amidst his inquiries for Baskerville. So it doesn't seem like he's too worried about it, though. You know what I mean? Uh, no, I would he, agree. I would agree. Yeah, he doesn't seem too worried about it, and I don't know if this is true, but he may not be entirely honest when he says this. I don't know. Mm. Even after Mortimer and Baskerville feel that it could be Barrymore, the Baskerville butler, who may have been the bearded man, a telegram sent to this regard uh, confirmed that, ba that ba Barrymore was at the Baskerville estate to receive it. Holmes also hires a young man from the telegraph office, Cartwright, to search every hotel wastebasket in London for the newspaper clippings used in the get that fuck out missive that was sent to Sir Henry or GTFO in this MSN modern day parlance. Talk about a needle in a haystack. Can you imagine like going through every wastebasket in like greater London, all those, all those hotels no, not trying so. to find them? Not like, a nice, that is not a, a needle nice in a haystack. No. <laughs> Poor Cartwright. Uh, but I guess the, I guess we're, I, I know like the whole like industrial revolution part was pretty much done, and they weren't doing kids with slave labor anymore. But geez, I mean, come on. No, I can, uh, I hope... in fact, I I can give you some context on that. Oh, if you, if you will. Yeah. Um, 
Where is it here? Yeah, okay, right, cool. So the district messenger service. Basically, Cartwright represents the district messenger service. He's an employee of them. Uh, it was a private company offering uh, postal services and also offered, um, what is it? Postal service and uh, kind of like, I'm going to say errands, okay? But obviously, you're not going to ask the guy to like sweep out your chimney. But an, an errand boy, in essence. Yeah, yeah, like it, like an errand boy, right? Um, and it had a lot of different branch offices um, around Britain or whatever, and it uh, competed with the post office. Now, Holmes's use of Cartwright may feel a little bit like the Baker Street Irregulars. Certainly did when I read the book for the first time. But I can tell you that uh, it's very different. Like these guys were professionals, not just kind of like amateurs. Uh, I was going to call them scummy kids, but that's not quite fair, I guess. There's, uh, they must come from some nice households. Street no. Arabs. That, that <laughs> right, Scum, term, scummy kids. You mean to say, right? That very, in, that very inoffensive term. Yeah, very inoffensive. Although the word like rent, or the, the, the term rent boy, like it has different meanings today. Um, <laughs> quite, quite so. We use the word to, uh, in this context, somebody who's doing an errand, like you said. Like you pay, you pay for the guy, right? And yes. um, the moment in chapter four where he's running around the hotels trying to get the different uh, waste paper baskets, like you're saying, that seems kind of isolated. But um, Holmes does a lot of things with Cartwright in this novel, and Cartwright kind of earns his money, you know? He, he's, he does. Yeah, and, and, and that money, by the way, three shillings for a half-mile journey for, for one of these guys, uh, six dollars, or sorry, six dimes per mile and eight dimes per for the hour. Yeah, I would dare say uh, Cartwright was able to go up and afford, you know, like a, uh, uh, like a, uh, I, don't, I don't know, perhaps like a smartphone or something like that, at least, yeah, you know, probably. like uh, that, that, which was more efficient in his job, that's for sure. Indeed. Sorry, pal. Uh, that, I, that I joke fell flat on its ass. I, I, I wanted to introduce a little bit of anachronism, but uh, it just didn't work for some reason. I think it was the delivery. I wasn't dry enough. I don't know. I don't know. Back to, back to your plot summary. Back to the plot summary, indeed. So before you can say gothic romanticism, Watson and Sir Henry arrive at Baskerville Hall, taking in via carriage ride the bleak landscape of the Dartmoor Moors. A lot of imagery that would make Bronte's sister swoon. Barrymore, the butler, is an enigma. His wife as well. Watson learns she is a source of the sad, sweeping, haunting, crying the, that, that they hear the... Sad sweeping, sorry. My, my two words joined together into, into one super word. The source of the sad weeping that haunts them the first night as he observes her puffy face the next day. Baskerville Hall is a creep fest with a great hall that could have hosted um, many a uh, terrible event, but Watson and Sir Henry persevere. John Watson Power Hour is what we get out of this now. A new spin-off series with <laughs> Watson solving his own cases. Watson gets a feel for the moors of Dartmoor and the denizens of the adjacent hamlet of Grimpen. Here he meets Stapleton, the naturalist with the mysterious dark beauty, Miss Stapleton, his sister, quote-unquote, who tells them all about the Grimpen Mire, where ponies and mules wail pitifully in the background as they sink to their deaths. Pay attention for the Grimpen Mire and the sinking, sinking in of ponies and mules. This plays a part in the end, by the way. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Miss Stapleton responds to any overture with get out, but in a formal, pleasant sort of diction. 
Then there's the whole business with an escaped convict loose on the moor, as if it could get any more foreboding. Now the Brontes are just rolling in their grave. Dickens, too, after we encounter Mr. Franklin later down the road. In the evening, Sir Henry and the, and the Doc shoot the bull to all these encounters, and Watson, in his spare time, sends all his data to Holmes via letters. The conflict loose on the moor is soon to be revealed as Selden, who is the little brother of Mrs. Barrymore, who, creating the atmosphere creepy with her nocturnal comings and goings and weeping, have been giving food and clothing to this rascal. For now, the Barrymores, whilst being a bit shady in their actions, seem to be innocent of threatening Sir Henry, who is now courting the mysterious Beryl Stapleton. The Yankee Lothario wooing his sister makes Big Brother Stapleton angry, and words are said. Watson observes all this from afar, and when they are walking back to the estate, the bane of a hound is heard. They race back, but among the tours, they spot a man, presumably Selden, racing across the moors. Many crags are, are, are hopped over, climbed, scaled, what have you. But this is not the bearded Selden Watson can see in the moonlight. This is someone else entirely. The plot thickens. Who else is upon the moor? Indeed, when Sir Henry, on the verge of firing the Barrymores for their deceit and disrespect regarding the Selden affair relents to allow, allowing them to keep their position. Barrymore, because of this kind generosity and also his own guilt, I suppose, for covering things up, uh, confesses that Sir Charles, the late Sir Charles, received a letter signed by a woman with the letters LL the night he died, a letter that was soon burned after having been received. But Barrymore managed to see it as, as he had been in Sir Charles' company. With some of his own investigative skills, Watson is led to a nearby town, Coombe Tracy, to a Miss Laura Leons, who's a divorcee. She is also the daughter of the eccentric Mr. Franklin, man who is both loved and hated by the community for his rigid interpretations of the law. Great character, sidebar. It was she who was supposed to meet Sir Charles that fateful evening, but in her defiant and standoffish, rather prickly manner, a miss that she could not keep the appointment at the last minute. So instead of Miss Leon's, the one young woman of letters, he receives a spectral hound instead. Hmm. Good trade-off. Good trade-off, indeed, Very good trade I would off. say. The Dartmoor environs, they are growing ever foreboding. Watson hears and eventually sees a boy from the village bring food and clothing out to the Neolithic Age huts. These same Neolithic huts that Dr. Mortimer himself is obsessed with, that Franklin threatened to sue him uh, for disturbing the graves of the dead or something along those lines that he could prove with English law and, uh, you know, and so he could crow about it for the rest of his life, I'm, like I'm sure he would, because he's a funny character. He is, yes. Somehow like. supplying the stranger uh, that he had witnessed the other night, this, this boy is bringing food to the Neolithic huts, and Watson is certain that somewhere there is a, that this stranger is connected to everything going on. He's about half right. So going to investigate these Neolithic huts for traces of the mysterious stranger, Watson is hollered over, come hither by Frankland, who wishes to get ripped with wine and chit-chat. The chat with this great Dickensian entity doesn't bear too much fruit for Watson, but ACD gives us info dumps in such fashion, doesn't he? Free from Frankland, basking in his awesomeness, Watson heads to the Neolithic runes and locates in the hut in which the mysterious stranger has been squatting. Someone has made himself quite at home. In fact, all that's missing is Miss Hudson. Oh, wait, Sherlock Holmes has been living here for the entire time. At the letters, Watson dutifully now appearing in front of him on the makeshift coffee table seem to attest. That and Sherlock revealing himself with theatrical aplomb to Watson on top of that. But before Watson goes apeshit on Holmes and his strategic, albeit douchey kind of thinking, Watson, like someone forgetting they left the stove on, realizes that Sir Henry is on his way on, 
on, on his way back on the moor, probably paying another visit to the Stapletons, or at least one of them anyway. But as dusk settles, lo, the eldritch baying of the hound can be heard. Watson and Holmes leap into action, racing across the moonscape, only to encounter a terrifying scream. At the bottom of the... Was that a what was that, was that a terrifying scream or was that like an old man trying to get his uh, uh, false teeth in? I don't know. At the bottom of a steep cliff of one of these tours, they find the shattered head of Sir Henry. But before you can say collateral damage, it's only Selden wearing the clothes that Sir Henry had been uh, that the, of Sir Henry that the Barrymores had been dri- have been dr- dressing him with to keep him warm on those cold nights on the moor. Stapleton he appears coincidentally enough. At, at, at the scene, wondering what's the sitch. He reveals Daniel Day-Lewis-level method acting when he learns Selden <laughs> and not Sir Henry is smashed in front of him. Holmes and Watson hurry back to the manor and give the Barrymores the terrible news. Setting in the creepy Great Hall, Holmes is deeply disturbed by one of the great portraits. But before Vigo the Carpathian is added to the list of suspects, Holmes, having just met Stapleton and wielding that great squishy apparatus of his, determines that the familiar face of Sir Hugo Baskerville bears a strong resemblance to dun-dun-dun! Stapleton, the naturalist. Eyes are dotted and T's are crossed, leading Holmes to send for Lestrade and for he and Watson to pull a double feint, making it look like they are leaving Sir Henry to his own devices. But the great detective is on the case. Baskerville is offered up as bait, while Holmes, Watson, and Lestrade posse up in the encroaching fog. Sir Henry, aware that Stapleton is in fact his psycho long-lost cousin, must have endured the most awkward dinner conversation with the Stapletons, especially with Stapleton's wife slash sister, Yep, Barrow played the siren song for Sir Henry, is tied up in Stapleton's serial killer antechamber. But the bane hour is nigh, and doggies, regardless of being covered in glowing phosphorus, gotta eat. (laughs) Stapleton takes the bait and bids Sir Henry a good night. Sir Henry, probably peeing in his pants, heading across the moor from Merripet House, soon finds death at his very heels. Howling, wet pants, and gunshots ensue as the hound is unleashed upon Sir Henry. But the dog is put down by our trio like Sonny Corleone at the toll booth. Merripit House is stormed and they find Stapleton's little shrine and a discombobulated barrel Stapleton. Discombobulated being an understatement. As for Stapleton, a.k.a. Hugo's nutbar descendant, he disappears into the Grimpen Mire where he has his base of doggy training. However, the thickness of the fog leads him to miss the markers of his secret path through the bog. If only his internet connection would let him run to Google Maps on the fly. But Stapleton <laughs> and the legend of the, le- of the house disappear faster than a T-Rex in La Brea. Nice work. Well done. Thank you, sir. Yeah, you did a good job at bringing that down. I did. I think when I was rushing towards the climax, the the, 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 the sentence structure gets more curt and and uh, they're, they're more, each line is more muscular. So therefore, the flowery, the flowery nature kind of it's just it's, it becomes less necessary right yeah. all of the all of the little red herrings and case and little case little bits that point to the case to slip away and then you get down to the nitty-gritty uh you did well you did well it's I like a metaphor that. for the book itself really no not really but you get my drift oh i get your drift i do get your drift um that you know what it's funny just just listening to you go through that um it it, it strikes me that the the narrative is actually pretty Did linear. You get my Ghostbusters it's, joke. Uh, by the way, I didn't. No, what was it? Uh, Vigo the Carp- I said the painting. I said before you can say Vigo, oh, Vigo the, Carpathian. the Carpathian. Yeah, I did get that. Now, now I get it. That's that's good. That's good because it's funny. Like I don't know if I have a note in my book about it. I must somewhere. Anyway, I, I made a similar note about that. It was very Ghostbusters <laughs> too, wasn't it? 
nice to see we're on the same wavelength. Hey, yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I just missed your. Um, I think it's because we grew up in the same grandmother who played the Ghostbusters movies for us. <laughs> anyway, um, cool man. Well, let's uh, let's see what we can do then about about lighting these pipes and getting to work. Yes, sir. Have you got any um, anything you want to say before before we get started here? No, I think we should light we should uh, light them up and uh, dive right into this uh, cre- uh, this this uh, atmospheric, creepy, but at the same time exciting uh, material. Pipes are lit. Uh, you probably couldn't hear that very well, right, but uh, the pipes are lit, and I'm enjoying this. What is it that uh, doesn't Holmes end up in a room of smoke here as well? He basically smokes all day, doesn't he? In the in in the hut, I'm assuming. No, no, he's at, he's at Baker Street, and he he's just like remember he goes away, and then Watson comes back, and he's like in a room full of smoke, and he forces oh, yeah, him to well, open the well, window because he's smoking his pipe, right? So it's probably a three pipe yeah. problem. He's uh, going through different uh, theories and ideas, right? The ideas that, that were, of course, come to fruition in the last act of the book. Mm-hmm. Well, look, buddy, our pipes are lit. Um, do you want to take a little break here for a musical selection before we get into it? Yeah, let's uh, set the ambiance. All right, well, we've got a couple of interesting tracks this time around. We're going to listen to a track from... A John Williams soundtrack, uh, an old Robert Altman film called Images, uh, about this oh, woman with. That. It's about a woman with kind of like mental. Um, or, she like realizes her schizophrenia or something, if, if that's the right way to describe it. But sounds like Robert Altman. Yeah, but it's a really twisted, a really twisted soundtrack with a lot of percussive um, instrumentation and strange sounds, kind of human voices. It's very experimental for what we, what we're used to seeing in John Williams. And, uh, this track particularly I thought was excellent for the Grimp and Meyer and the environs that we're about to discuss dogs, ponies, and old ruins. Hmm. Fitting. It's also quite creepy, a little bit atmospheric here, I think. Harry Potter? You can hear the Harry Potter in here, yeah, but um, it certainly predates Harry Potter by a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. I'll just let it play and you can enjoy it.
so there you go. Uh, creepy, Ooh. creepy, yeah. atmospheric. I think a good piece for Halloween, a good piece for this particular episode here. Dogs, yeah. ponies, and old ruins. Each of those things happen to find their way into and onto, rather, the moors uh, in this story. Yeah, that's... Uh... That's a that's a very uh, fitting musical maison scène for our, our tale. Nice work, nicely put. Anyway, thank you, sir. Let's thank move you. on. Let's move on, shall we? Let's talk about the pipes. So, pipes is an acronym, of course. P being the prince of pipes. The P of the pipes being the principles, i.e., our dynamic duo. I for the investigation. P for the perpetrators. E for the environs. And S for the supporting players or supporting cast. Uh, whichever way you look at it. Uh, we score these out of five, and these determine a grand total in which we get an average uh, at, at the end when all this is added up, uh, where the math does all the work for us, right? Concise. Brilliant. Nicely put. So the first one, so let's take a look at Holmes and Watson, and uh, let's see how they fare in this story. Happy, what did you give overall that. to the principles? Just uh, getting that off the bat. All right. Overall, I uh, what did I give overall? Let me have a look. See, doodle here. Yeah, overall five. I went five for these guys. So did I. Yeah, I was surprised to be so generous, but five is what I gave. I, I Holmes at the top of his game. Watson being the loyal, steadfast man that he is, but also playing a, a big role in the story in his own way. You could say that he is a glorified plot device in in a certain way, you know. But at the same time, you feel his agency in the story. And Holmes and uh, ACD writes Watson to me as a as a character uh, in in this much stronger than he has in previous stories, in my opinion. Yes, we we've used the word before on the show agency, but agency is exactly what he has here. Um, Watson is involved. He's uh, characterized in a way that we. We, we okay we've seen his character before but we really get his character coming through here in a meaningful way his fears his insecurities his dependence on Holmes is very strong here as well I find dependence on Holmes but at the same time uh, you have empathy for him in a way that like when Holmes like treats him badly at the beginning I don't think he, I don't think he meant to but the whole thing where he has Holmes where he has Watson you know make his deductions about Mortimer's walking stick. And how Watson is making very kind of kind of very in his own confidence is making these observations. And then, of course, you have Holmes, who basically, you know, who basically says, like, uh, really, Watson, you excel yourself. I am bound to say that in all in the accounts which you have been so good as to give of my own small achievements, you have habitually underrated your own abilities. It may be that you are not yourself luminous, but you are a conductor of light. And then he goes on later on to say, interesting, though elementary. Has anything escaped me? Watson asks. I'm afraid, my dear Watson, that most of your conclusions were erroneous. When I said that you stimulated me, I meant to be frank that in noting your fallacies, I was occasionally guided towards the truth. Not that you're not you were entirely wrong in this instance. He gives him that at least. The, mm -hmm. the man is certainly a country practitioner, and he walks a good deal. <laughs> but, of course, that doesn't uh, – it, it's, it's like, uh, as I mentioned, uh, he, Watson is like his, his drug almost to him now. It's like he needs Watson thereby to blunder and make the obvious human errors that the, the great calculating machine uh, 
so that that great calculating machine can see the proper path and not make the same mistakes, right? Like uh, it's, it's a way of um, of uh, excelling by through example or through comparison. Mm-hmm. He does do an awful lot of that uh, in these opening chapters. Uh, sorry, this opening chapter, and there is a it's kind of like a, a give with your left hand, a slap with your right. It's kind of that 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 way, isn't it? The whole introduction here, the welcome back to Holmes for the readers who had waited for so long. Yeah, well, I think too is that this scene uh, we've seen this similar versions of this kind of scene in previous stories, and to me, you know, I've, I've found, I guess I, I guarantee you a lot of readers back then at the time reading the first chapter automatically they're put in this bubble of comfort because they're right back into you know the world that they love right uh just by this exchange in itself it is a interesting thing to see throughout the story i I don't know if 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 you picked up on it but holmes gets quite impetuous with watson later on as well and i mean he, he he's loyal and he's kind of snippy He's a little snippier Holmes is here than I find in some of the other stories. And like he trusts Watson enough to send him on the trip. But then as soon as he shows up, he's he's kind of curt with them. He's kind of uh, nasty when he's revealed out there. In, not nasty, but he's um, I'm not expressing myself terribly well here at this point. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that the interplay between the two characters that we see here remains fairly consistent throughout the story. And I found one of the things that was engaging was the fact that Holmes is a little bit more... Um, uh, callous. Yes, thank you. A little bit more callous than with with his partner than before, you know. And Watson... it's almost like Doyle has him kind of like as a. It's like a, he's has him the blade. He's like honed down to like a sharp edge now, more so than a blunt instrument. That's a good way of looking at it. And Watson feels hard done by his pal in a couple of places. Especially in, in in the in the reveal at the Neolithic huts that Holmes has been there the whole time and watched everything that he's doing, I would be pissed off. I mean, for what Holmes did there, um, understandably, you understand why he did it, but at yes. the same time, yeah. I would think I would feel a bit bruised in my ego about it. That's for sure. Yeah, my ego would would also be bruised. I think um, it's it's a trust thing, right? And yeah. all relationships depend upon it. But at the same time, you would have thought that by now. Watson would understand that he's, you know, Holmes is a high-functioning autistic, and he's not always going to think in terms of the other guy's emotions, you know? No, because that's not logical, right? I mean, that's... uh, No, and by the way, I I use that expression loosely. Um, I think I'm using it somewhat accurately, but I don't want to confuse anybody, you know, there's no proof that Conan Doyle wrote this character to be an autistic character, but I see an awful lot. I see an awful lot of interplay uh, between features of those personalities that I know so well from my work in education and, you know, dealing with kids and, and adults alike. Um, no, I'm not an expert at it, certainly, but I have exposure and I see a lot of the same things, you know, in, in these high tariff individuals that I, I, I work with, but um, Doyle never necessarily wrote that blueprint in, but I think there's a lot of evidence for it. So I, a, apolo- it, I apologize in advance if if using this expression, uh, you know, seems exclusive. It's uh, it's a curious thing, and it's a good observation, especially in this day and age. And given also too, I mean, in comparison to the portrayal that Cumberbatch delivers of Sherlock Holmes, and you can definitely see 
an influence there um, mm-hmm. and, and ideas set there. Of course, I mean, there's other stories about Sherlock Holmes, too, and other theories about him, uh, especially the idea what, what the theory you told me about uh, that some fans think that he is actually uh, a, a woman in, in, in disguise. Yeah. yeah. That and of course, different. there's evidence of this in that in this in uh, in the Hound of the Baskervilles. Apparently, there is. We'll get to it because it's a point here that we're going to talk about. Um, but mostly, it's this idea of uh, Holmes not having a beard. Like that's that's the largest thing. He didn't bring any shaving equipment with him on this trip to the uh, to the Neolithic ruin. <laughs> Interesting. It's, yeah, but that that just goes to show like the level to which some people will mine. Uh, for evidence, you know, to support their own bizarre theories. Um, well, I'm sure the fanfic people would like that, that's for sure. Yeah, they probably will, yeah. Anyway, yeah, uh, getting back to our pipes and indeed the task at hand, I thought that the two characters were, were really good here. Uh, I didn't always feel like they were a terrific partnership, but, no. but uh, particularly for Watson's role um, and his capable, uh, well... His, his capabilities, I guess, the best way of saying it. Um, I, I enjoyed what I read here with him. I thought he was great. I liked how, this is what I liked about Watson in the story. As I mentioned, you have an exchange at the, at the beginning that sets the status quo between them. But then it's when Holmes tells Watson to accompany Sir Henry to the Moors. So we see Dartmoor, the Grimpen, Grimpen, Grimpen Meyer, Coombe Tracy, all the Stapletons, <clears throat> the Barrymores, um, all the other you know, environs of the of the story through Watson's eyes and how he interprets it, and this adds to the description of it of of it, yeah. of, you know, its own vivid imagery that, that that it lends to. But it also, as you said, it gives him strong agency in this story, and I like how he is a friend to Sir Henry, and uh, you know, and and with Doctor Mortimer. And I like seeing. I, I enjoyed him getting frustrated with Doctor Franklin and, and stuff like that. There was, or his or his conversation with uh, Laura Leons, who's being very prickly to him, and you know, sitting at her typewriter. Uh, I like the idea that someone was using a, t- a, t- a typewriter in, in the Sherlock Holmes story. I just found that interesting and very modern. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the same, you know, I, I just found that Watson just added this element of everyday manness that really brought the story home and it grounded it in my opinion and 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 in this in this story we always found that you know watson is kind of in previous stories we always found watson being sort of like a plot device like just just for like you know holmes is almost like a stand-in for the audience almost right but in this story i found holmes i found that watson was a stand was with isn't it was it wasn't really a stand-in to the audience he was an empathetic he was a very empathetic character you know like we felt empathy. We felt uh, bad for him. We felt good for him, and in the highs and the lows, you know, like we, we really got into his character in this story. And Holmes is kind of, in the way, almost like the plot device of the story because everything that Holmes is using the story is just just to show his strategic brilliance. And he and he and he, but so he's functioning on all cylinders. But at the same time, he's pretty callous. And unlike other Sherlock Holmes stories. There's little sentiment I found with Holmes in the Hound of the Baskervilles. Yes, um, yeah, he is, as you've already said, more callous. I, I just want to get back to something before we go on and talk about Holmes's dimensions. Um, how did you rate Watson's um, suspicions of or dealings with Stapleton? How did you feel about how Watson was 
portrayed during those sort of investigatory, exploratory moments? Well, Watson was on the lookout for Sir, for Sir Henry, so and and worried about the hound and and, and the Selden, you know, the, the convict and all this sort of stuff. And and he and his job was to protect Sir Henry. So Stapleton, uh, to me, was just a distraction in in, in Watson's view, um, especially in regard to Beryl. And I don't think I I think he I think this is kind of like the walking stick uh, thing is kind of fits in here where he has the basic data in front of him, but he's missing, you know, like the little details, the little minutiae that requires for him to make the, the, the grand deductions that Holmes can make. And I, I, I think the whole thing of Stapleton kind of missing, sorry, of Watson missing the Stapletons in this is, is a kind of an, uh, as a greater kind of uh, parallel, not, not parallel, but a greater, uh, it's almost like a microcosm to, that story, this, 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 the, uh, the, the exchange with the walking stick is almost a microcosm to Watson's role with the Stapletons. Okay, I see that. There's a parallelism going on. Parallelism, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Hmm. I thought that those were some of the best moments that we see of Watson when he's reading, for us as well as Holmes, he's reading Stapleton's character and delivering his character to us, you know, like that, that's where we gain our suspicions and that's where we really sharpen our senses to what could be a very serious thing going on, you know? Yes, I, I agree. There's, there's, there's little kind of hints and there's little kind of hints that are, that are, that I think are, is through Arthur, Arthur, but again, through Watson, we are getting Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's arbitrary little danglings of the plot, right? Mm -hmm. So, Watson as a character to me, I don't think really saw the Stapletons until the big moment between um, uh, uh, Holmes and the uh, the portrait of Sir Hugo in the in the gallery. Okay, right, I'm with you. So I, all I'm saying is that I don't think Watson made the connection that Stapleton equals the bad guy. Um, Watson just was able to provide us a rich canvas. In his in his in his uh, in his um, renderings of these characters for us. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I guess then a natural question stemming from that is: Did when did the buck drop for you? Did the buck drop for you about Stapleton through um, the observations of Watson in his letters to Holmes, or was it later when Holmes showed up that you started to suspect more seriously Stapleton? The, sorry, the reason I asked that in the in the context of the principles is because if, as, as for me, um, Watson doesn't suspect Mortimer. There's no sense to that at all. No. Uh, whereas Mortimer Holmes, is... Holmes, I find that the scene where Mortimer is introduced is quite interesting because he's talking a lot of phrenology, like the shape and size of his skull. That's something Moriarty was really interested in. The readers might mm. even have caught on to that at the time and thinking, this guy's weird. He has the same sort of suspicions, even though phrenology was quite a popular uh, field of study for, I don't, I'm going to say anatomists. I don't know if that's the right term, but you know what I mean, for like people who are um, in, into medical science and whatnot. Even though phrenology was interesting, uh, it, it it's not really something that, seems to fly on the radar that Watson's got. So I'm feeling Watson's suspicion of Stapleton is either a red herring or accidentally on his part, if you're saying that it's 
it's not something for him to ultimately go ahead, deduce, and confirm. Accidentally, correct. And I think we have to read Watson as more of an investigator in this story than we're used to. But I think yes. that's really refreshing. And so my, my question about where the buck dropped for you is just to kind of feel how you, how you came to view Watson or not as a more specialized investigator. I would say Mortimer, I would say Watson uh, was able to rule out that Mortimer was not involved whatsoever. Then you have all the colorful people and he presents each one of these characters in the story as he encounters them as suspects in many ways, Stapleton included, Franklin included with his, his, his eccentricities and, and all that sort of stuff. Right. And then, uh, then you have, uh, and there's different how Watson reacts around different people. Like for example, with Stapleton, Watson is, um, kind of like, what is wrong with this guy? You know, like, and he already creeps and, and Watson is already kind of taken aback by Stapleton when Stapleton kind of just, just like shows up with his butterfly net, right? A very kind of harmless figure, but there's just something about him that bothers Watson. And then you get the whole thing with the sister and then you get him like yelling at uh, Sir Henry and stuff. And Watson, I think just generally, I think Watson gets to the point where he just doesn't like the guy that it makes him not view him as a suspect because of that. If you catch my drift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, but, I do. I do see what you're saying. And then think of then of course with the mess with Laura Leons, and then speaking to Laura in uh, in Coombe Tracy, there is palpable tension with him and and uh, Laura Leons because she just exudes that with everybody apparently. But uh, so so I, so the, and what and and Watson was very good in in his kind of like his quasi interrogation of her. I thought he was too. He was quite cold and cutting at times. Well, she wasn't giving him much, much right, and she was being very defiant and 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 pertinent in that way. So he kind of gave back what she gave him. He paid it forward. (laughs) Shall we read a little bit of this um, great scene where Watson first meets Stapleton, and maybe just finish up or wrap the bow on this discussion of uh, him as a agent in the story. Absolutely. Unless, unless you can second or perhaps afterwards, you want to complement this little section with uh, a bit of your own, uh, a section of your own favorite Watson moments. But I, I quite like these moments where he's uh, with Stapleton outdoors. Well, since we're, we're, we're uh, the whole question and, and originally was about when did he, when did he suspect start when possibly did he start suspecting Stapleton? Um, let's bring that scene up. You got it there. Yeah, I do indeed. Um, Stapleton has just finished telling um, <clears throat> Watson that he's uh, about the environment. And he says, it is a wonderful place, the moor, looking around, he said, uh, over the undulating downs, long green rollers, with crests of jagged granite foaming up into fantastic surges. Sorry, I, f- I think I got a sneeze coming. That's all. That's why I'm delayed. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> it's past. You never tire of the moor. You cannot think the wonderful secrets which it contains. It's so vast, so barren, so mysterious. You know it well, then. I've only been here two years. The residents would call me a newcomer. We came shortly after Sir Charles settled. But my tastes led me to explore every part of the country round, and I should think that there are few men who know it better than I do. See, that to me is Doyle planting a seed of suspicion through Watson. Because although it's something that the character of Stapleton reveals, this is the reader's opportunity to say, oh, okay, this guy spends a lot of time on the moors and he's claiming to be an expert of this rather 
uh, dangerous environment. Mm-hmm. Carrying on, uh, it would be a rather uh, it would be a rare place for a gallop. This is what um, Watson says. You'd naturally think so, and the thought has cost folks their lives before now. You notice those bright green spots scattered thickly over it? Yes, they seem more fertile than the rest. Stapleton laughed. That's the great Grimpenmire. A false step yonder means death to man or beast. Only yesterday I saw one of the moor ponies wander into it. He never came out. I saw his head for quite a long time craning out of the bog hole, but it sucked him down at last. Even in dry seasons it's a danger to cross it, but after these autumn rains it's an awful place. And yet I can find my way to the very heart of it and return alive. By George, there's another of those miserable ponies. Something brown was rolling and tossing among the green sedges. Then a long, agonized, writhing neck shot upwards and a dreadful cry echoed over the moor. It turned me cold with horror, but my companion's nerves seemed to be stronger than mine. So Mm. there's this idea that, you know, ghastly sights like this, watching animals die, doesn't bother him. And indeed, that follows given his treatment of the, the hound itself. Uh, which is revealed later when the tin mine is exposed, and we know how he abused tin mine, this. Right. We know how he abused this animal and starved it to gain its its ferocity. Um, and I think by very cleverly putting Stapleton within this environment, this deadly uh, House of Usher type environment, you know, we are we're meant to see through Watson that this is a key suspect. And I think the foreshadowing is being laid here, and. Although Watson never ends by saying this is a key suspect, Holmes. Let's let's, let's work on him. Um, I think there's enough in in the little messages, you know, back and forth to speak um, a certain awareness, a keenness. Maybe he's picked up from years of working with his friend that this is a man to follow carefully. It's very meta, isn't it? I mean, it, within the story world, this is Watson showing more deductive and detect- and. Problem and uh, more deductions. He's, his his detective skills are improving here. And at the same time, Watson, as the stand-in for the reader in his own capacity here for seeing the world and seeing these clues ACD puts before them, there's like two communications going on here between Watson at, to Holmes and the whole, I guess, the list of suspects. And then you have the audience also picking this up at the same time. I, I, I like that connect between them. Yeah, and I also think that Watson works as a stand-in for Holmes, where he needs to, because he says, mm. to, he says to Stapleton in this quite rational, positivistic way, you know, you don't believe in this type of shit, do you? You don't really believe in a hound of the Baskervilles. Like, don't try to frighten me. And I think that sort of, that edge, um, maybe it's a performance, because he knows that Holmes would expect him to be doing that, but... You know, I, there's a lot of trust here, and I, I really think Watson delivers, which is why a successful film, a, film adaptation of this story has got to be cast with a good Watson, because you're missing an opportunity to, you know, this isn't, I, I'm just going to go out there and say it, this isn't the Sherlock Holmes show. The things that I love about Sherlock Holmes here uh, in the story, uh, I mean, are yeah, they're great. They're impressive. Um, but Watson shoots the dog. You know what I mean? Like Watson, yes. Watson meets and delivers all of these characters to us, the reader. Watson is the one who tingles our suspicions. Holmes puts things together in London and obviously does the big um, uh, macro clever uh, 
what's uh, deception, right? Of of being there on the mire and, and hiding out and everything and, and figuring it all out. He puts the connection together with the portrait because Watson's too thick to see it. But I, I think this is Watson's finest moment in the entire canon so far. I know you're I quite agree. partial. I know you. I know that you're partial to when he throws the pipe bomb through uh, um, Irene Adler's window. <laughs> but um, I I think this is a great story. Uh, the Copper Beaches was a great story for Watson as well. But yeah, I'm 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 done with talking about Watson. I think he's great. He's deserving of a five. He's fun to follow, and it's nice to change the formula a little bit from Holmes doing all the chat. You know. I think, too, is that a lot of these formulations of these characters through Watson's eyes, because he's more sympathetic to the human condition, also plays a role in in, in solving the case. Whereas you have Holmes, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle has brought Holmes back after, you know, being killed for so long. And then you have Holmes appearing in the uh, in the story and he's used in a, in, in a way that's true to Holmes I think in the most purest fashion possible, mm-hmm. you know, you know, Holmes, the, the, the strategist, the, the deceiver, the great rationalist, uh, that's who you see in this book. He's at the top of his game. And, but by telling the human story of Hounder, the Baskervilles, you know, we have Watson doing that for us. And I think that's really lovely. I agree completely. Uh, let's talk about Holmes and very briefly, uh, do you want to, I know your plot summary did it, but um, do you want to just sort of jot note his accomplishment here and just say, here's what he does, here's what he does, here's what he does? The, the things he does, his achievements, rather? His achievements. Well, the one thing was uh, was his, we, we learn about, for example, his ability to read newsprint uh, quite well. Mm-hmm. And he was able to discern which newspaper that the clippings were taken from so that he could give uh, that information to Cartwright so that they could check all the wastebaskets, right? That's Which, really cool, that's... and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna add to what you're saying here. That ability, as it's showcased in the story, is you're right, quite fascinating. Uh, but it's even more impressive when you consider how many daily newspapers there were at the time. Do you know how many daily newspapers there were? I have no idea. One thousand one hundred and sixty-three provincial newspapers in England and Wales. Wow. Now. Okay, fair enough. He's dealing with the London ones, right? I mean, we know that he's he's not going to be reading the uh, uh, Aberystwyth Times or the Ladludno Esquire or whatever the hell it is, but he's he's got the London papers and he knows them. But it is kind of like a superpower. It is in a way. But also, if you have like the tabloids, they're going to have lower quality printing, whereas he was able to recognize, uh, I believe, the font, or sorry, he was able to, to key in which newspaper that person was using because of the font used right like in the header Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but even all of that it's just an impressive firework it it doesn't really mean anything in the story and i maintain that most of the important stuff going on here is watson's um even if he's not aware of it watson's uh accidental okay fine i'll agree to that but it's watson's exposure it's it's his work holmes doesn't really do anything masterful uh, all the little things he does are cool, you know. The little minutias, yes, but Holmes is, is is Holmes is working at full capacity here, and he does what he does. That's what that's how it works. I mean, mm-hmm. we learn by the end of the story that when when uh, when Holmes breaks everything down for us in the denouement, that every little thing he was already onto, like even the Doyle writes Holmes, you know, holding the letter. Uh, the uh, the letter close to his eye, you know, and then putting it back out. 
he was actually smelling it and he got the woman's perfume from that piece of paper. Yeah. And they were able to determine that was written by a woman who we again, of course, learned was uh, Beryl Stapleton. That's right. And that, that is good stuff. But I'm arguing that Watson going to Merripit House, meeting Miss Stapleton and us seeing how strangely she behaves and getting that like, okay, so Holmes is able to say this was a woman, but Watson goes and meets the woman without exactly. knowing anything about the, the letter and the perfume. Or, sorry, without needing to know anything. So some of these things are still just cool little look at my super tricks, like a magician that Doyle is putting into the story because he knows that his fans want it and because Holmes is, of course, addicted to it. I said before that in this story, Holmes is definitely um, – the game is afoot for him. Uh, he's in full detective mode. He's he's He's, he's the – I would say, I guess, I guess since his death, he is back. He is back, and he's better than ever at you know, in being the character that he is. But to me, the most enriching part of the principles of this story of of this Sherlock Holmes adventure was Watson, and Holmes just does what he does. And I don't think there's much distinguishing between in other Sherlock Holmes stories. In my personal opinion, I think it's I think it's Watson and his role in the story and his and his own investigations for Holmes uh, that really bring the story to life to me and make it a, a significantly stronger story than other Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes uh, tales. Yes, I would agree. And I think we're saying the same thing here. So we needn't, we needn't repeat ourselves too much, but yeah. I would just like to say this in terms of recommending the story, which I would do wholeheartedly, I wouldn't recommend it as a great example of Sherlock Holmes, the class detective investigator. I think that this deserves recognition and recommendation as being a complete piece of work, like a partnership, you know, a story. Like Holmes does stuff, and of course the stuff he does in the later part of put, helps put it all together. Like Watson puts it all on the table and Holmes makes it all connect, you know, and yes. metaphorically speaking. And, and that's that's awesome and that's important. But this isn't because he's out of it for quite a while. Like this isn't a story I would say, "Oh, you got to read this. Sherlock Holmes is just fantastic in it." Like it no, he's not. He's awesome. He's doing exactly what he always does, but it's not Holmes only story. This is this is a Watson coming out party and and I really like it. It doesn't mean I don't like what Holmes does, as I've already said. I'm giving these guys top marks, but this is this is Watson's moment. Yeah, uh, yeah, the five, the five, to me Watson alone is the reason for the top marks. Yeah. Yeah, I think we I think we can agree on that. Otherwise, yeah, something like that. Okay, I cool. Think we, so yeah, so that's the principles. Uh, Watson um, is is the hero of of the Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, so let's move on to the investigation, uh, which we can also kind of discuss the story and what we as a whole. Let's talk about the investigation. Yeah, and of course, when we talk investigation, it's not just the the things that the characters are are doing, the clues and whatnot. It's also the the way the story's written and um, the style and the pacing of the narrative. Uh, this is a straightforward, straightforward linear narrative. There's nothing too complex here. We I think we've actually had more complicated uh, short stories, and I'd like to think that part of this story's charm has come from an authorial reflection that the naval treaty, though regarded as a fine story, is maybe a little bit too complex for its own good. And 
in getting back to a spooktastic type of story, let your environment do the speaking, let your characters uh, motivate the story, don't have too much intrigue, um, let the, just kind of, let the ambience take over. The, and and one of the, the things I think really works for the Baskervilles is the fact that the setting isn't just poignant, but it is a character in the story and mm. it needs to be a character in the story for the story to work as masterfully as I think it does. Um, if we don't have the creepiness, then we're not reading Stapleton in quite the same way. Like why would a man choose to live so isolated and a life as this? And I mean, that butterfly thing is, is a pretty lame cover, you know, and, and especially a naturalist. That's true. Now that you think about it. Yeah. Like why would a naturalist live out on the moor? I mean, you have to be a particular type of, of, of expert, you know, of different animals and whatnot. But, uh, a naturalist, I mean, who do you think he is like Charles Darwin in the Galapagos? Like, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, 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 okay, that's a, that's a weird thing, but I tell you what, that still remains one of my favorite scenes from the story is when Watson describes him as like the strange strange man running towards me with a net, and then he just on a whim in the middle of co- like mid sentence, the guy fucks off and chases after chases after some moth flying on the in the, in the skyline. You know, he's the, it, he it almost weird. gives him like a child like kind of petulant kind of feel to him, eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, what did you make in terms of investigation of the fact that at least three times in the story, Holmes says to Watson something along the lines of, I'm, I, I've told you this before, Watson, this is no ordinary crime. This is a serious thing. Like, do you feel like that's, that was maybe over-egging the pudding a little bit, not having as much faith in the readership? Or do you think that's just what Conan Doyle does to try to sensationalize things? I think in a way Conan Doyle likes... Uh, sensationalizing things and I think it was just an un- un- unconscious sort of I guess Freudian slip on his part you know revealing his hand that uh, you know this is a dramatic story a melodramatic in, in some fashion and he just wanted to let the audience know about it and sometimes you know you 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 get excited about things and you end up like hitting someone or, or stepping on someone's toe and, and that's kind of what, what th- th- that is Okay, I, ju- I just wanted to ask you because it does come up a couple of times, kind of like like a dun 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 moment, you know. And it, it, well, it to, to me it was a little it was a little jarring when I saw it for the third or fourth time. Like, okay, I get it. You don't have to yeah, keep saying the, this. The, the literary the the literary imagery that's being presented to us is enough for setting the, the ambiance and and the tone of the story. And a couple of it seemed kind of, yeah, just kind of like ham-fisted in that way. So I, I, I agree with you on that. I actually didn't give the full five for the investigation of the Hound of the Baskervilles. I gave it a high mark, mm-hmm. but there are certain things that kind of needle me when it, when it comes to giving it a full mark. So I kind of I, I ended up giving a slightly lesser mark than I really wanted to. Right, okay. Well, we'll reveal our marks in just a couple of moments once we finish our chat on the investigation. But I, I wanted to raise a couple of points that came out in my uh, annotations that I was reading as I studied the story. Um, in terms of Henry's estate, you know, people are fascinated with Henry's estate, what he's inherited from Charles and uh, and, and kind of its value. In the book, it's quoted as being 743,000 pounds. That would have been worth in 
modern or sorry contemporary dollars 3.7 million in 1902 okay oh wow approximately three and a half million in 1902 in today's financial world you want to take a guess at how much that is worth that estate i would say a billion or more oh jesus no 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 he's not like a richard he doesn't have his own islands and his own airlines and stuff no (laughs) oh man Uh, not that much but still a shit ton of money 85 million in today's money sir henry's that is a shit ton of money and so henry's inheritance is not surprisingly particularly now that we know the story uh something stapleton wants his uh his teeth into and that is definitely motive for killing in this even in this day and age mm-hmm, mm-hmm. inflation um, included <laughs> something else i came across and I, I i do hope josh you don't mind me doing it this way just kind of like going from little thing i found to little thing i found but no. um I'm I'm, try- I'm going to go as chronologically as I can through some of it, but I thought it was interesting. So by all means, interrupt or add on when you when you come across something. But um, one of the notes that that I found, you remember when Holmes and Watson are trying to find out who, you know, who this bearded guy is that's calling himself Sherlock Holmes, right in London. It's obviously trailing them. Um, they found the cab, the cabbie, right, the guy who's driving the uh, the hansom. Uh, That's right. Via the official registry of the public carriage office. And I thought this was quite cool. In 1895, okay, so I know that's not exactly the time of the book, but it's near enough the time of the book. There were more than 11,000 horse-drawn cabs which serviced London. And well, that That's a populous city. That it certainly is, you know. That, that really goes to, to put it into perspective. And it employed over 20,000 horses. Impressive. Hmm. Um, I wanted to read a note directly from my Klinger text, if I could, about the cabman, John Clayton, and his aggressive appearance, because it's quite, I think it's quite revealing, and I thought you'd you'd enjoy it. Just going to find it here. Did you like that scene? The, the, uh, the, the, uh, the following the, the cabbie and speaking to the cabbie, or yeah. the, uh... Like when he, when he shows yeah. up, when he shows up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a uh, it was a nice little uh, moment with the commentary in that in that sequence. Not okay. Well, anyway, uh, <clears throat> uh, the ring at the bell proved to be something even more satisfactory than an answer, for the door opened and a rough-looking fellow entered who was evidently the man himself. I got a message from the head office that a gent at this address had been inquiring for two seven zero four. Said he, "I've driven my cab this seven years and never had a word of complaint. I came here straight from the yard to ask you to your face what you had against me." <laughs> I had nothing in the world against you, my good man, said Holmes. On the contrary, I have half a sovereign for you if you'll give me a clear answer to my questions. Well, I've had a good day and no mistake, said the cabman with a grin. What was it you wanted to ask, sir? Anyway, so that that scene, right? Oh, yeah. I, I love his friendly but churlish attitude. Mm-hmm. Well, a, a tor- I also a- like the pride and like the and, and the personal dignity that he had as well. It's like going, well, I heard sorry, I heard that someone said I did something wrong or or or. Or, 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 you know, that there's, there's a mark, a black mark against me. Why is this there? I want to find out why, you know, like, and he's not, and he's not demanding it. He's not like, uh, causing a confrontation or whatever. He simply wants to know because he cares. And I just found him a a very vital individual. He was interesting. And I think dignity is a good word to use. So I applaud you for that. But I do think that he is described somewhat aggressively, uh, in a, in a tourist guide of the time, the Baedeker, Baedeker guide, which was, uh, a pretty popular tourist book for those visiting London during this time. Uh, this is what's written 
It's a caution to the tourist of London. Quote, Many of the London cabmen are among the most insolent and extortionate of their fraternity. The traveller, therefore, in his own and the general interest, should resist all attempts at overcharging and should, in the case of persistency, demand the cabman's number or order him to drive to the nearest police court or station. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I guess I, things haven't, haven't changed much, uh, in, in, even in the modern days. No, I guess not. I, uh, I, I wonder what they would make of Ubers. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. A couple of more points from the narrative here. Um, I'll skip that one because we'll talk about it. What was your favorite sequence in, in terms of the narrative? What was your favorite sequence in this in the story? My favorite sequence. Um, I I really liked the. Okay, I'm I'm just gonna I'm gonna say this. All right, and I'm a, I'm surprised. I guess that I, I I did find this to be a surprise. This is the best compliment I can give the narrative. When Holmes is revealed as the mysterious man on the moor. I didn't see it coming. I honestly didn't see it coming. Wow. I know. I know. Is that like, am I, am I a total, am I a total idiot? Or like, I know I, I just didn't see it coming. I, I don't know. I, I was like, honestly surprised. And I've read 26 of these stories now and three of these novels. And I've picked out a lot of the clues, but I was so engaged in the story. I loved the meeting all this these rapscallions and all of these, you know, secondary players and that I was, I was engaged enough to believe that Holmes actually was in London. Like, so stupid, who did you stupid. think the man on the tour was? Like, <laughs> I'm curious to think who, who you thought he was or, 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 or what he represented. Did you think that he was like the killer at that time period or? I thought that that could have been Stapleton. Okay. I thought that that could have been, Barrymore, because even after Barrymore was still acting a little bit strange, you know, I, like, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't have any major, like Stapleton was my chief suspect from the entire story. Like I always felt like he was responsible in some way, but I knew that there was a Cartwright involved at the beginning. I knew that we had a lot of different people here on the moor. Um, we've been told about its mystery and its nuances and its depths and all this stuff. So I, I could have, you know, I was expecting it could be anything. So even the even the even like when they mention uh, Cartwright or the boy as he's described, you know, bringing food to to the man on the tour and yes, whatnot. Yes, man, it, I'm it, telling it never you. It, it never it never clicked in, eh? That's cool. That's it's cool. Not, that's it's kind not of, cool. That's kind of I mean, yeah, it, it's fun because it means I was I was really interested in the story, but it's stupid looking back at it now. Of course, of course, that fucking boy. Like, what else would a boy be running around the wilderness for? Like, of course he's there with Holmes, but I, no, I I didn't. I, I don't know. I, by, so, the, by the time that was revealed, so there were so many when, strange characters that were already at play that I thought, okay, so there's a boy. Okay, big deal. Now there's another boy. <laughs> That's really neat. I, I, I mean, I kind of thought it was Holmes. Just based on past history of how Holmes acts, I, I, when I saw the man on the tour there, I just, I don't know, I just kind of felt that this is Holmes. Because why isn't Holmes in the narrative? Like, he was, he was very absent in this story uh, in comparison to other ones. And this is like the great Sherlock Holmes novel. So I think on that basis, I just assume that that was Holmes already, or that he was somewhere in, in in play. No, I'm I'm looking through my notes now, and I wish I had something else to tell you. Congratulations to you and your reading of it. Um, I, I I missed it. Like I picked up on other things here. Like I knew 
from the very beginning, I, I suspected from the very beginning that that lady was not his sister, given the way that she was being, um, like, you know, resistant to Henry. You know, when, yes. when Henry proved to be an out for her, Henry could have been a wonderful future for her, you know, but she wasn't going that direction. Like, And she's like, go away, go away, yeah, leave yeah, yeah. now. Yeah, exactly. Very weird. Yeah. So I suspected that stuff, and I, I suspected Stapleton was rotten. But, yeah, at the end of Chapter 11, man, when when he shows up, I didn't see it coming. Like, I, I was truly caught out. Should have suspected it, but I didn't. So well done to ACD. You know, he got me anyway. When Watson entered the hut and saw all of the, the you know, the, the home, the home's peripherals there in, in the hut, did you clue in then or when he or when he showed up afterwards? I, I, I clued in to this being um, Holmes when I heard Holmes say, it's a lovely evening, my dear Watson. And I was lying in, <laughs> I was lying in the bathtub reading the book. Uh, at that particular moment, and I slash, I, I splashed my hand down on the, on the on the water. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake! Like I should have seen that coming, and I just didn't see it coming. But in in my defense, and I think this is one of the strengths of the narrative, we have that mysterious bearded figure who's tracing them through London. Why couldn't he also be the guy on the moor on the tour? You know, like yes, he, like yes. I think that Doyle planted that that doubt in a very effective way, and it it made a sucker like me cling on to that idea that this could be the stranger who was after Holmes and Watson. It's the little things that Holmes does. It's the observations that Watson makes. Um, uh, the ups and like the ups and like the ups and downs, you know, like, uh, like that occur, like almost like a roller coaster in terms of, of plot development in this mm. story. Yeah. And that, and to me, that's what keeps you on the edge of your seat about it. And, any kind of moment where you, you're forced to pontificate, or you're stuck in a, in a it take, or or it takes away whenever you get like too analytical and you, or cynical, the ups and downs of the stories, the fits and starts, it allows you to go past those little feelings that you get uh, about oh this is predictable or this is cliche or whatever, and that's the, how the strength of the story is done is that you don't notice those things. Yeah, and. So- yeah, exactly. whatever. I hold my hands up, buddy. <laughs> I hold them up. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that that's ultimately, yeah, you can look at it as, as my own naivety or the strength of the writing. And I think what we're trying to do is champion the writing here. It, it's good and it's engaging. Um, one of my favorite sequences. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. No, no, no you, go ahead. you go ahead. I was going to share you one of my uh, favorite sequences was okay. when uh, Watson goes to Coombe Tracy to speak to uh, Mrs. Leons. Okay, sure. When I reached Coombe Tracy, I told Perkins to put up do put up the horses, and I made inquiries for the lady whom I had come to interrogate. I had no difficulty in finding her rooms, which were central and well-appointed. A maid showed me in without ceremony, and as I entered the sitting room, a, a lady who was sitting before a Remington typewriter sprang up with a pleasant smile of welcome. Her face fell, however, when she saw that I was a stranger, and she sat down again and asked me the object of my visit. The first impression left by Mrs. Leon's was one of extreme beauty. Her eyes and hair were of the same rich hazel color, and her cheeks, though considerably freckled, were flushed with the exquisite bloom of the brunette, the dainty pink which lurks at the heart of the sulfur rose. Sidebar, Watson likes the women, doesn't he? Yeah. (laughs) I I also think Arthur Conan Doyle might as well. Oh, wait, he did. We know know he did. (laughs) 
Admiration was, I repeat, the first impression, but the second was criticism. There was something subtly wrong with the face, some coarseness of expression, some hardness, perhaps of eye, some looseness of lip, which marred its perfect beauty. But these, of course, are afterthoughts. At the moment, I, I was simply conscious that I was in the presence of a very handsome woman and that she was t asking me the reasons for my visit. I had not quite understood until that instant how delicate my mission was. I have the pleasure, said I, of knowing your father. It was a clumsy introduction, and the lady made me feel it. I love that line. There is nothing in common between my father and me, she said. I owe him nothing, and his friends are not mine. If it were not for the late Sir Charles Baskerville and some other kind hearts, I might have starved for all that my father cared. It was about the late Sir Charles Baskerville that I have come to see you. The freckles started out on the lady's face. What can I tell you about him, she asked, and her fingers played nervously over the, st the stops of, the t of her typewriter. You knew him, did you not? I have already said that I owe a great deal to his kindness. If I am able to support myself, is it largely due to the interest which he took in my unhappy situation? Did you correspond with him? The lady looked quickly up with an angry gleam in her hazel eyes. What is the object of these questions? She asked sharply. It's the just the exchange in this in this particular moment that I just find really rich and uh, ex exciting. Uh, like it's like you're reading like a noir almost, you know. It's calculated it, for sure. It's very calculated, and I, you can even picture, you know, like uh, really well cast actors doing this scene like marvelously, you know, like yeah. it, it. You just I I I it just like visually I just picture like the lighting and how it would be done in a kind of in a cinematographic in a cinematographical kind of way, and I just think that that. Uh, it's just one scene in this story that just mood is set through emotion and through character and the environs are brought out through people's own doings and comings and goings. You know what I mean? Um, I, do. I, yeah. I was just going to add that, um, that scene is probably Watson's finest, uh, moments of, I'm not going to say, um, Kind of like, well, it's police work. It's invest yeah, police work. Thank you. Yeah, it, it's not quite interrogation, but it's close to it in some places because he knows that this girl's cold to him and she isn't going to give him too much. But um, I, I, I could have talked about this in the uh, supporting players when we get there in a couple minutes, but uh, I'll just share this information now, seeing as it has to do with Laura Leans. Um, this is a diversion, but I think it's interesting. Do you know the name? Does the name mean anything to you? Laura Leans? Mm hmm No. Were you reading Playboy back in February of 1976? Apparently not. No, well... I was Laura... but a twinkle in my father's eye. <laughs> Laura Leans was a Playmate of the Month, February 1976. Hugh Hefner dabbled in his own Sherlockian scholarship. Did you know that? that, uh, that he was I a... know he was... A, I know Hef was a huge uh, film, film buff. Uh -huh. And he liked mysteries and noirs in particular. Now, he was a big Sherlock Holmes fan. And um, anyway, this, uh, this, this girl, uh, Laura Leons, for a long time was believed to be created, was believed to have been a created name for this uh, 1976 edition of Playboy, generated and costumed kind of by Hefner's love of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> that, that's the, that was the belief. Now, it's not true, okay? This was all speculation. Uh, Hefner later revealed in uh, in a an interview that he did with um, a Sherlockian site, uh, or uh, what was it? I've got it written here, actually. Hefner interviewed with uh, b -b -b someone. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But 
pisses me off because I had it. But because he did he did the interview with like uh, an actual Sherlockian. It was part of like a Sherlock Holmes thing, right? Where this was brought up. And he said, no, it's all nonsense. That was her real name. That's the model's real name. Her daughter, Laura Leon's daughter, uh, Lily Aldridge, is now a successful glamour model herself and a media figure of her own. Sure. And I thought, I thought it was interesting because even in the pages of Playboy magazine, you know, and pinup girls, you've got the far reaching hand of Holmes is, is kind of ever within reach, you know? Far reaching hand, eh? Yeah. Well, okay, 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 yeah, yeah. Wah, wah. <laughs> I just, I just thought it was, I just thought it was cool. Um, yeah, but th- that is a great scene, and Laura Leon's, her part in the story is interesting. Um, I could give you some information on why, like, she needs the money to divorce, why she needs the money to divorce her husband, uh, because it's, it, it's, it's kind of neat. Because um, she, I was she's... really interested in that. This is the first instance I think we read about divorce in a Sherlock Holmes story. Um, just as in terms of like a time capsule for like the Victorian era. I know divorce was uh, was around back then, but I don't think it was done a lot, especially in that age. Well, if it was, it certainly couldn't be done by the by the woman. I'm just going to read this quickly. Um, we got about 40, 45 minutes to go, uh, but I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go through this. Uh, right. So encouraged to compare the considerably different statement of Dr. Mortimer um, that to what this woman said. That uh, Leon's provide uh, proved to be a back guard and deserted her. Is Mortimer's version merely the story that Leon's puts out to spare her own reputation? Victorian society had little regard for divorced women. The laws of England gave Laura Leon's little likelihood of divorce, but a reasonable prospect of separation. Mm-hmm. According, according to Judge Albert Rosenblatt, now Justice of the New York Court of Appeals, quote, under the laws of England, a judicial separation could be obtained by either the husband or the wife on the grounds of adultery, cruelty, or desertion. Under the Divorce Act of 1858, while a husband could seek dissolution of the marriage on the grounds of his wife's adultery, the wife could only seek dissolution on the grounds of incestuous adultery, bigamy with adultery, rape, sodomy, bestiality, adultery coupled with sufficient cruelty to serve as grounds for divorce in the ecclesiastical courts, or adultery coupled with desertion without reasonable excuse for two years or more. The Encyclopedia Britannica concludes, quote, The reason why the adultery of the husband is considered a less serious offense than the adultery of the wife will be obvious to everyone, end quote. Uh, okay. By 1895, Parliament had made some reforms to the divorce laws, extending the grounds for a wife seeking divorce to include aggravated assault upon the wife within Offenses Against the Person Act, conviction for an assault on her ref- resulting in a fine of more than five pounds, or imprisonment for more than two months, desertion or persistent inc- cruelty to her, or willful neglect to maintain her or her infant children, if by such cruelty or neglect the wife was caused to leave and live apart from him. In such circumstances, the wife would apply for an order containing any or all of the following prov- provisions. And it goes on to list the provisions. But basically, women had so few rights, mm. mer- meritally, legally, that her, her motive... In, in being friends with Charles is kind of interestingly colored. It's a bit darkened because she's after money, right? Like she wants money to get for this divorce, but this is also Stapleton playing her. And so more and more we see Doyle's villains manipulating this patriarchal society, like yes. rising to the like, rising to power by laws that discriminate women, right? Like this is Stapleton getting extra money for what he's wanting. And that's kind of how 
they're able to find their advantage. You think about Hosmer Angel from A Case of Identity, I believe that's the one, you know, where he he impersonates the, his daughter's boyfriend so that he can make sure that her money is okay. Like, these are continuously, and this is a great example of it, I found, because it, it it's like, it's another example of how these villains are making, uh, are kind of strategizing to keep women down while making themselves better. And... It, it really sucks being a woman in Victorian England. Like we've talked about this before. It's it's an it's an apparent fact, but I thought that Laura Leans is is in such a desperate hold here that she's believing Stapleton and Stapleton knows what to say to her to get everything that he wants. So she has chose so 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 you know so three quarters of the narrative she's she's his ally in in, yeah, in many yeah. ways. It, yes, and that's right. why yeah. she's so prickly when Watson comes around and stuff. Mm-hmm. She's putting up the defenses. Yeah. Anyway, uh, thank you for indulging me in that, but I thought it was yeah, it was, it was, it was worthwhile. And I think the thing I think it's less and less about the investigations now, more so than this how the narrative is is, is uh, put together by the author. Um, and I think, as I mentioned, you know, the ups and downs, the roller coaster feel of the Hound of the Baskervilles, the little minutia that we get, the little clues that are dangled before us, the red herrings, all of these things they culminate uh, in. And all connecting at the at the very end and and an explanation and I think it's a satisfying read because of that as a whole and it's also a really taut story if you think about it yeah yeah and uh, there's nothing wasted at, at all in, in the story every moment in the in the, in, the, in, the, in the novel there's is is not uh, superfluous to well, that's what I was going to gonna say you, you've used it you've nailed it um, this it's very economic in what it what it delivers but. Having said that, it is very romantic, capital R. Like there's this romantic gothic element to the story that that really radiates off the page, and I recommend it as much for that as for anything else, to be honest, because it's it's a really creepy story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you got the gothic imagery right, right, right there. That's bang on the nose. I mean, you half expect uh, Heathcliff to just appear out of nowhere and uh, and kills her, kills her Henry. You know, I've I've made a note about that actually later on, but we'll see if we get to it. <laughs> Uh, one last note I want to make here. Uh, you know how how is it? How is it possible that Mortimer misses the fact that this this portrait is of you know it misses a connection between Stapleton and the Baskerville uh, the Baskerville gene because he is as he expresses at the very beginning <coughs> an atavist, right? He he publishes. He publishes a, a folio piece on, and it's called Some Freaks of Atavism. And atavism itself refers to a recurring ancestral characteristic or trait. We learn this in the very first time we meet him. That this is Holmes is impressed with him because he's read this piece on atavism. And if Mortimer is such an expert in generic traits or genetic traits, how the fuck does he miss what, what Holmes picks up on in just looking at the portrait? That's a good question. And I read uh, like some in forewords for the Hound of the Baskerville and, and other sources that that's one of the kind of the goofs, I guess, of the story. Um, uh, minus, you know, um, Holmes not picking up that uh, Beryl uh, Stapleton is, has, doesn't have a Costa Rican or sorry, has a Costa Rican accent. Yes, that's that's quite interesting, too. Um, oh, by the way, you should see what the Cushing adaptation does with that. <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll let you be surprised. But yeah, it's a hammer horror film, so I probably can guess. Anyway, no, no, it's 1954 too. Uh, I'm uh, even back then, okay, but well. uh... I, I just thought it was strange that Mortimer, a doctor who name drops 
and is compared to the likes of Bertillion. The you know that he, he talks about how Holmes is the second greatest brain, and he, he name drops <laughs> uh, and kind of challenges some Isaac Newton theory here, and he claims to be an expert on atavism, but. When atavism or that sort of radar of it would be so very useful to him to be able to suspect who this guy is that that is causing the problem or what's behind the hound, he's really just a superstitious nut, I guess. Well, if you think about the whole tale about Hugo Baskerville and you know these British gentlemen and how they all of a sudden become like animal, like frat boy animals, you know, uh, hunting the maid down and uh, on the on the Dartmoor moors, and. These are, these are, that's not how noblemen are supposed to behave, you know what I mean? And I think with Mortimer, who is a middle class man and he's, Sir, he was Sir Charles' doctor, uh, I think he expects the nobility to act a certain way. And those paintings that you see in the gallery are of the nobility. And, you know, you see the nobility there, you see the paintings, and you walk by them every day. And then you have someone like Stapleton who may have the features of, say, Sir Hugo Baskerville, but at the same time, he doesn't conduct himself like a gentleman. He doesn't mm-hmm. conduct himself like a like a not a gentleman, but like a like a like a nobleman, like nobility. He conducts himself in his own kind of eccentric, sort of naturalist kind of way, and as a fellow scientist. So, home, I, I can see the the, the uh, an argument that Mortimer misses these activist features, as you say, because he's blinded by. I guess the indoctrination of nobility versus, I guess, the common man in his own lifetime. That that's an interesting, adept reading of him, and I hadn't thought about it that quite that that way. But yeah, you're you're spot on, man. I guess that excuses him somewhat, but it doesn't make him. It you know, in terms of a a, a plot, it's kind of a fan element. wink. I it's kind of a fan yeah. wink. I agree, but I I think it works. Well, I think it's it touches on something that the contemporary reader may have been more aware of, you know. One thing we should talk about as as, as the end the investigation portion is the the climax of the story. What did you think about uh, this big dog? I think it was like a big mastiff or something like that. Yeah, that's my that's my very next point. Um, there's a lot of discrepancy over what kind of hound this is. Uh, Watson refers to it as a mixed breed of the. Uh, you know, kind of like a mastiff. Um, you know, I can we well, like we can read that bit, or I can just go to my note on it. What would you prefer? Oh, you can just read the bit. Okay, cool. Um, but <clears throat> I just wanted to point out, just for you know, for those listening, is that what do we? Th- what did you think overall of how the Hound of the Baskervilles was rendered and brought to life in this I story? Thought, I thought it was it was genius, really, and it makes sense that a guy who knows a thing or two about phosphorescent moths and butterflies would then be able to apply in such a grisly way the same sort of bioluminescence to a dog to make it seem a terror. But, um, the, and it's so resourceful. And I know this is, this is touching, bridging into our discussion of the perpetrators, which I really want to keep short. So I'm just going to say my bit now. Uh, it's so resourceful and and manipulative and criminal and evil if i can use that cliche word on stapleton's part to sense here's a story i can make this story a reality you know here's a myth here's a family legend that i can use science to bring some life to and and help me in my 
journey to become what I want to become. Like it is such. There was a no field that his devilry move. couldn't reach. Eh? There was there there was no, no. field where uh, he, there was no opportunity that he wouldn't take. That's right, and I mean to close the point on the investigation. It's it's a moment of of great genius on Doyle's part because he's he's employing science in a very creative way to communicate not just his own intelligence but the the strength of this character action and i think it's great you've got science used in this way as well because even holmes doesn't doesn't get it until that phosphorus stuff is is noticed in the in the tin you know he doesn't get yes. it and and that's no, great like i like that because there's the it always because you want to continue that tension of like the hound, what, what exactly is this hound and what is it? You're not quite 100% sure that there is a perpetrator here. It could just be the supernatural. Mm-hmm. And they discussed that at the beginning of the story between Mortimer and, and, and Holmes about how, is this going to be like a, a fairy tale or is this going, are we, is this secular versus, you know, rational? Like it's those, it's, 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 it's those, um, it's superstition versus rationality. And, there's a good ambiguity building up until the very end of the story where it could go either way, in my opinion. And I think that's what, that's the genius of the investigation and that's the genius of the story in itself. Yeah. It's Um, really good to explain to you why I didn't give full marks on the investigation. Part of the tale was my disagreement with how the denouement was handled. It was a bit of an info dump to me, uh, just to be a bit critical and I found that I wanted some because we had sketched out such rich characters uh, in, in in this tale, like a really strong dramatis personae. I wanted to see what happened with Beryl afterwards. Mm-hmm. Did she continue to? Did Sir Henry, you know, like uh, did he marry? Did he marry her? You know, uh, or even Franklin? Or I just felt that there was a bit that we had too much of that typical Arthur Conan Doyle Kurt Denouement in this one. And that, to me, was a bit painful, especially for such a rich story, that I only give it 4.5. I went 4.5 as well. My summative notes say a little quickly wrapped up. Uh, and I also felt the escaped convict connection was uh, an obvious red herring, um, even though it helped to flesh out some depth in the Barrymore couple. It didn't really service the story that well. Like I didn't. Mm. It, it, it helped in the sense that it gave us more confusion on the more which I guess Doyle was hoping would be the smokescreen for Holmes being there the whole time. And so that, that was useful. But I went 4.5 as well. So, yeah, I mean, we are 4.5 and 4.5. Just just finalizing, getting back to that thing about the, uh, the hound itself, um, one of the sources I've got here says this, quote, From its gigantic size, I would hazard that there was more likely some Great Dane or Scottish wolfhound mixture involved. Uh, but, but, but that's Stuart Palmer who's writing in the notes on certain evidences in Canophobia in Mr. Sherlock Holmes and his associates um, uh, so yeah some giant Scottish wolfhound or Great Dane perhaps others consider a Doberman Pinscher or an Irish wolfhound could be more of the breed instead of a Mastiff but uh, it's, it, it's flexible and variable people's ideas here uh, even mm. the possibility of a Cuban bloodhound crossed with a Tarbetan Mastiff go figure that's some that that's some surgical precision on uh, breeding there when all you're told is that it's a big ass fucking dog that glows in the dark like i mean i don't know i don't know how people get to that but <laughs> anyway uh right look let's uh, i mean i think we spent a lot of time and good important time touching on the investigation um i, I i'm quite conscious of time and i gotta be uh, you know we gotta wrap up in the next 25 30 minutes so 
let's just rattle through our our perpetrator. I, I feel as though we've spoken a lot about Stapleton. Um, I liked Stapleton quite a bit. Um, yeah. I, I loved the fact that we we get his idiosyncrasies so very well and clearly revealed to us. Um, it's a great idea, I think, objectively, to have this 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 environment be the thing that our perpetrator is after like this this castle this money this this idea of wealth and prosperity and noblehood and nobility rather and all of that stuff but um i do feel like his backstory is is necessary to be a little better revealed to us so that his motivations become clearer like is he just a crazy guy like who who wants the money like what is it that motivates him because we know about his school we know about his failings there but we don't really know much about him and i think it's interesting that although it's suggested through holmes's discovery of footprints in chapter 14 that stapleton has stumbled and sank into the mire like the ponies before him um there's enough foreshadowing i think to suggest that Stapleton could maybe have survived. Like, we, we don't have a body, you know. Mm. There's, if you think of it, given his knowledge and dexterity upon the moors, even at night where we know he's been out with the dogs, I mean, they, they certainly could have aided his escape. The, plus the fact that there was mist, low-lying fog drifting all over the place, that could have helped. Um, his body was never discovered, and he had tin mines and places to hide out in. Like, even if he did survive all of it, though, his his genius was still kind of like um, a product of this. Uh, I, I, well, no, I mean, I, I won't go into that. I, I won't go into that. But I'll, I'll just say, like, I, I think that it's cool. He could have survived. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, OK, that, that's fair enough. I gave. Uh, I, know, I went I four. More... I went four. So I went you went four. four? Yeah. I went higher, actually. I actually find Stapleton is that uh, he's a solid five for me. Okay. Right. People say Moriarty is like the great villain of Sherlock Holmes, and I disagree with that, obviously, having read that, uh, uh, the final problem. I feel that Stapleton is probably the most richly developed Sherlock Holmes villain to date. In the present tense, have... I, w- I would agree with you in what we get in the story, but we don't get anything about why this guy is doing what he's doing. We know that he's an heir, but... Is, is it just greed? Is that all that's driving him? Greed um, and Greed and, and I think the establishment of his and the, and I think the reestablishment of his of his of his legacy. Right. And of so course, are we meant to see his, him as a his legacy? It's like a, it's a twisted legacy, and so that's what he, we're meant to be. Is he Hugo? Then is that what we're meant to see? That he is as twisted as Hugo is. I feel that it's almost like he is like Hugo reincarnated. I, I think that's what Conan Doyle was going after here, especially like with Holmes in the Great Gallery, looking at the portrait and seeing and seeing you know the, the eyes and and the, the face and everything like that. Whenever you read a story about reincarnation and stuff, and then people talk about features that that would have that resemble that individual, and you can see how in the past how they might have resembled uh, and that that particular individual. So I think there is a reincarnation element to the story, and I think that makes things really interesting. And we haven't really seen that before, nor have we seen someone able, able to use the supernatural to their advantage in solving a case. Uh, sorry, in not solving a case, but um, in committing their crime um, to reaching their goals. Um, right. Okay. I mean, everything you're saying is right, and you're reminding me of my earlier statements about his brilliance in using the phosphorescence and the, the, the scientific employment and whatnot. And yeah, maybe a full mark is a harsh 
is a harsh thing to draw down when you're thinking of all these good things. But yeah, I'm I'm still stuck on this lack of explanation of why he's doing what he's doing. And and if what you're saying that his legacy and the relationship to the Mad Hugo is is more along the lines of what we should see in him, then I I would just reiterate the disappointment in that denouement not giving me any conversation between Holmes and Watson about him and where he came from and where his madness came from given that we had Holmes tell us four fucking times in the story this is no ordinary man this is no ordinary man okay spell it out for the stupid people who didn't know that that was you on the moor you know like people (laughs) like me like tell me why it's so important and why it's so skillfully laid out there like I would have liked a clearer wrap-up but I do uh, okay you know what I'm 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 accepting what you're saying and I'm maybe being too harsh I'm I'm gonna go 4.5 Oh, okay. One thing I liked about about Stapleton as well, if you got to think about him, his situation is is that I mean, he did not get the life that's like his uncle Sir Charles did uh, in his own way. Like he, he he was his father. He was the son of his of uh, of Sir Charles' brother, and he lived in Costa Rica and he had to survive and fend for himself. So. And the only way he could do it, I guess, because he was just not a good person deep down or spiritually, maybe, he had all these nefarious ways of reaching for the top. And I just find like his slow crawl and trying to get what he wants. I just find that really interesting. And and there's no sentiment to his character or any kind of way like they, we don't really feel empathy for him. But I find that uh, in the end, because his villainy isn't really exposed until the end of the uh, near the end of the story uh it's only when in, at the very end where everything adds up and explains his motivations to us in in the best possible way that the story does uh, we don't really get our villain until near the end of the story in in, in a way if you think about it all we have is suspects up mm-hmm. until you know the final confrontation yeah, which is why the story, getting back to an earlier point, is so very engaging. Uh, exactly. You don't know who the suspect is. You could be, what's what's Laura Leon's deal? You know, like, there's so many I, concepts of perpetrators in this story. There's so many red herrings. There's the Barrymores. There's Selden. There's the man of the tour, whoever he might be. Who is this guy with the beard that's following, following him around L- L- London, who calls himself Sherlock Holmes? Is that the same guy that's on the moor, as you suggested? Um you know, like, and I, what I find interesting too is if if this is a Watson story in its in in its way, I like how Watson is kind of has like a almost like a, a you know kind of like a, a a cat and mouse game with Stapleton because you have Watson the doctor versus Stapleton you know the naturalist, and for some reason I found them almost like they were polar opposites of each other that they're like a yin and yang, and. I, I don't know. I, I, I just got that element from the story. Did you? I mean, I, I don't. I didn't make a note of it. Certainly, um, that they were written as kind of oppositional forces, as characters. But I can see it. Certainly, as mm-hmm. you spell it out, I can see it, and I don't disagree with you. Um, hmm. I mean, he. Well, I, I did say that he was the biggest suspect for me the whole way through. So perhaps. That kind of that that helps to support what you're saying that the yin yeah, and yang, it informs it. the contrast was certainly alive there between the good and the evil or the potentially evil. Um, yeah. Anyway, look, he's a great character. So you went five overall. I went. I, I'm actually going. 
I, I thought, I mean, I really enjoyed the, the Hound of Baskervilles, and I, I, thought, I think Stapleton is one of the most interesting villains in the Sherlock Holmes canon. But I do agree that, that he, maybe I had some additional fleshing out, which I think also affected the denouement a little bit, uh, sorry, the mark of the investigation to me, I think also bleeds a bit into the perpetrator's mark. So I'm going to go 4.5 as a whole with the uh, perpetrator. Okay, well, that's cool. <laughs> Um, I've got very little to say about the environs here. We, I mean, we could read make the a, book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we could we could read a list out of the places in the story. London is as London always is. There's nothing really gripping. There's no great uh, ornamental description of any of the interior spaces. We don't get any of that. Um, Baker Street isn't really highlighted because that's not what this story is about. This story is a travel log. This story is about resurrecting. A, a haunting of a family, uh, of a legend, and it's about using the environment to make comments on all of the suspicious characters and the strange goings-on in this area. This yes. is a ghost story. This is a horror story. This is an investigation. It needs, and I think masterfully does, use its environment to great effect. I don't want to go on and, like you're saying, read the book. I, I don't really even want to feature too many passages here. Uh, not just in the spirit of brevity, but also uh, in terms of spoilers and stuff. This book comes to life with environment. It's it's beautiful. It's gothic. It reminds you of Edgar Allan Poe. It reminds you of Wuthering Heights. It reminds you of Jane Eyre. It brings all of these things to mind. The best mm. of Anne Radcliffe's gothic literature. It's great. This is a wonderfully decorated environmental story, and it uses its setting so very well for the narrative. I went full marks at five. I feel strongly about that. Um, I would challenge anybody who gives it less, to be honest. Yeah, no, I gave it a straight five. So you won't get any challenge from me in that capacity. Um, the whole book is just like the fog that permeates everywhere. Atmosphere just permeates this entire story. Yeah. And Baskerville the... Hall, I mean, you know, I'm talking a lot about the Moors and we're talking about the Grimpen Mire and the, 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 you know, the suck pits and the mist and everything. But the hall itself is, is really resplendently um, described. It's, it's nice. It's interesting. You've got those important descriptions early on about the balcony and its sort of open square form and then how they, they chase Mortimer down. Well, they, they quietly chase Mortimer down the hall to see what he's doing with that sort of uh, that light in the window. you got all kinds of cool stuff going on that evoke the, the will-o'-the-wisp mystery as well you know in the lights and the bog and just tons of cool scooby-doo if you want to go there but yeah gothic dracula stuff if you want to go there you know and i, I can't yeah. help but think that the frankenstein elements the um the dracula elements are, are although dracula hadn't been published yet had it so maybe dracula pulled a few things from this story anyway i think the idea like of like a grand house like this on the, on these on this craggy desolate moor you know, like, and they mentioned, uh, I found was that was the U alley where, um, Sir Charles was, uh, was, was killed. Um, just that description of like an alley of like trees, you know, and then just, and, and then there's that, just that, mm -hmm, that gate mm -hmm. yeah. that led out onto the moor directly. Yeah. There's just something kind of like John Wayne and the searchers standing in the doorway between ah, civilized civilization yeah, and, that's a good one. and, and, and the rest of the, and, you know, civilization and the, and the, and the outdoors or the savageness, right? Yeah. Uh, there was just really, there was really great, I guess, uh, uh, dynamics in that way. Now that's a good uh, one. You're right. You pulled a good comparison there. Um, I've got to correct myself. Dracula had been published 
by this time. And so, yes, it had. It was published in 18, 1897. Yeah, 1897. Yeah. So maybe Conan Doyle is playing off of that that sort of environment too, you know. And it, it worked, and it works. This Watson is great, also, great. I also want to point out, is that unlike other Sherlock Holmes stories, we have Watson writing the date of the journals as well, or it says first entry, first entry. Now, does that not remind you mm-hmm. of the epistle uh, the, mm-hmm. uh, the epistle layered Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah, I mean, you get, you get some of that Jonathan Harker stuff, don't you? You really do in that way. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good. Um, that's a good one. Yeah, that's that's a smart point, and that, that plays into the narrative too. You know, I mean, there's there's no compliment like uh, imitation, right? Yeah, and what makes things scary to a regular audience is the fact that, like, when you write a letter or a journal, it gives it this essence of realism, unlike a straightforward third person narrative, and. I think that's what made the horror book so like like Dracula is so effective, and I think that's what makes Hound of the Baskervilles uh, on top of that. But Doyle also wrote a third person narrative and uh, also wrote a first person narrative in there as well uh, at the same time. So I think he was he was playing with the best of both worlds there, and the environs show it. And yeah. I think five, as I said, you can't go you can't go uh, lower than a five in my opinion with this story. No, I think that that's it. We've said it all with that. Um, I also have. Uh, only a little bit to say about secondary characters. Um, I'm going to let you say a little bit more than me on this, but I'm just I'm just going to fly at it this way, okay? Um, I think this is an excellent, really idiosyncratic cast of characters. Each one is fleshed the best out so far. Each one is fleshed out appropriately for the the size of this text, with the exception of the main villain, whose backstory I'm a little pissed about. He doesn't really feature in our supporting characters anyway. So from the dose of what you need with these characters and their characterization, you got Henry Baskerville, Dr. Mortimer, Franklin, uh, Mr. Franklin of Laughter Hall. We'll talk about him in a minute. Uh, Stapleton of Merripit House. I know that, you know, he's designated as a figure of more particular interest as a perpetrator, but Miss Stapleton, Beryl Garcia from Costa Rica, Barrymore, Mrs. Barrymore, Selden, and Perkins and Cartwright and Lestrade are all kind of non-happenings here, but it is cool. Lestrade's involved. Uh, Laura Leans. I I think that this is so great an ensemble story. Like uh, it, it's very difficult not to go five with this as well. Um, it, it it really is. Like, what more can you want? You know, from a supporting cast. Franklin is almost worth a five on his own, and we haven't even talked about him yet. Yeah, um, let's read that passage of that of, the, of, of like the discussion that he has with Watson. There's a great passage there. I'm just going to find it right now. Just uh, one second here. And the name. Of I course, didn't make a note on that one either, no. but you you, you just tr- you just triggered me. It's just before um, Watson goes out and finds Sherlock because he he he's he's talking to um, he's walling away way the time talking to um, Franklin. Hmm. So this is where they're looking through the telescope, right? Yeah, they're using a telescope. Yeah, he, that's right. Uh huh. He's such a great character. Just a guy who, he, you know, he he's just. I think like almost every town must have a a man or a woman like this who just puts their nose into places and just is a an upsetter just for the sake of being a, an upsetter. And although we don't really take uh, we don't take Franklin seriously as a master suspe- suspect in here. You know, like I, I, he is enough of a of a troublemaker to make you wonder what's he trying to do. Like, what's his angle? And so again, this is another textured layer 
of potential suspicion that is in the story. He's just an asshole. I mean, if, if someone's tuning in, they're just wondering who is this Franklin guy that these guys are talking about. He's just an asshole who makes trouble in his neighborhood and likes to take people to small claims court um, to gain <laughs> advantage where he can and a bad name. He seems to get off on having a bad reputation. You find that yet? Yes. Yeah, so, so this is Watson talking to Franklin. You'll be surprised to hear that his food is taken to him by a child. This is him. This is uh, Franklin describing um, the man upon the moor. I see him every day through my telescope upon the roof. He passes along the same path at the same hour. And to whom could he be going except to the convict? Here was luck indeed. And yet I suppressed all appearance of interest. A child? Barrymore had said that our unknown was supplied by a boy. It was on his track and not upon the convicts that Franklin had stumbled. If I could get his knowledge, it might save me a long and weary hunt. But incredulity and difference were evidently my strongest cards. I should say that it was much more likely that it was the son of one of the moorland shepherds taking out his father's dinner. The least appearance of opposition struck fire out of the old autocrat. His eyes looked malignantly at me, and his gray whiskers bristled like those of an angry cat. Indeed, sir, said he, pointing out over the wide-stretching moor. Do you see that black tower over yonder? Well, do you see the low hill beyond with the thorn bush upon it? It is the stoniest part of the whole moor. Is that a place where a shepherd would be likely to take his station? Your suggestion, sir, is a most absurd one. He's polite, and but he's also very forward and uh, gentlemanly, even in his anger. You know, mm-hmm. like he's uh, just like it's just a delightful character. He is a great character, and he has so little time on the page that it's it's a great composite that he comes out. You know. Yeah, it it, it 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 really does, and I think it speaks to the, just the grounding of the story and 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 Watson's interactions with people and how he sees people in the view that in a way Sherlock Holmes wouldn't, mm-hmm. and just the connection of Franklin to Laura Leons herself an interesting character. I read out that passage of of Watson interrogating her and the tension in that scene that you it's very palpable, yeah. um, and you have the all these and these all these other connections and so everyone connects to everyone and it's just, and the characters just they're just full of fire and they, they, and it just and on top of the environs and then the overall story and then how Watson and Holmes function uh, the whole cast is just absolutely brilliant and yeah five I can't see how why you would go any lower for for for, for this we yeah, we have both scored this novel. 24 out of 25 which is the highest mark we've given to any of these sherlock holmes stories to date and i think it's well deserved and it's i agree we, we agree with the critics we agree with the critics and um there's no snootiness here on our parts folks of wanting to be different to anybody else i guess the popular vote uh certainly remains popular here with us we agree with those who have said the hound of the baskervilles is among if not the if not is the best sherlock holmes story I would say it's also probably one of the one of the best novels I've probably read in my lifetime too. Yeah, it's up there. It's certainly up there for me as well. Um, in the mystery genre, I can't think of anything that tops it, to be honest with you. But I mean, I haven't read a lot of mystery stories, so. Mm-hmm. Well, look, pal. Uh, I mean, we've we've got more stories to come. Uh, that's us we wrapped sure up this episode. Just about uh, three or four minutes to go. I've got another musical selection, but before I do that which fits nicely in, I think, with the end of the uh, the story. Um, I'm going to play in a few moments for you um, a little bit from Meyerbeer's opera Les Huguenots, 
or Les Huguenots, or however you want to pronounce that, which of course is the opera that Holmes and Watson go to see in the last paragraph of the story. You got anything to say about what's coming up? Uh, well, we're beginning the first tale of the return of Sherlock Holmes, which will consider continue, continue chronologically after the final problem, the empty house. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see how this compares to the resurrection of Sherlock on the television series. Indeed. Look, pal, it's been fun. I'm glad we got this done. Uh, I'm really glad we got this done, given that it's a week late and uh, we had to squirrel all over the place and with all kinds of different technological um, sacrifices and uh, offerings and whatnot. Sometimes like three hours just isn't enough time to, to kind of go through all the details of, uh, of a novel like, like this. If anything, I could say as a closing statement on The Hound of the Baskervilles, it, 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 and, and if you agree with me, great. Um, it is proof to me that Sherlock Holmes as a character and, you know, and the stories that he inhabits are better told as like a novella or even a novel form as opposed to a short story. That's my personal feeling. Hmm. I just find that. Can you reiterate that main point again, please? You think that Holmes in the the novel. I think that, I think the Sherlock Holmes functions, a Sherlock Holmes story functions better in a novel or even, even like a novella format as opposed to a short story. I just find that for the for these for stories like uh, like like these to really uh, to me stand out and uh, be so en- enriching and engrossing, you need to have I think a certain amount of pages more than usual than you would have like in a strand monthly pu- pu- publication. Uh, with, with you know that kind of just starts out with the same formula, ends with a curt denouement. You know, like I I just find that. Um, he Sherlock Holmes to me uh, stands out stronger as, as 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 a great story when it's in a novelized form. Okay, I don't disagree with your point with respect to this story, um, but I still like my Sherlock Holmes in digestible chunks. I like the short stories a lot. I I, oh, yes, agree, I agree with what you're saying, and I do think, as we've spoken about before on the show that there was a far-reaching element to the adventurous side of this writer, and he often didn't give his stories the right scope. And so, yeah, like, how many times have we said in this series, gee, you know, it sounds to me like that's the story he really wants to be writing, this backstory of the characters who are coming from America, like Hattie Doran or whoever, you know? Like, that's the story he wants to talk about, the great Gloria Scott, um, uh, what do you call it, uh... And mutiny, the mutiny of the glorious Scott. Like he wants to tell these big adventurous stories, but he crams them into short stories so that they feel quite saturated. I get you, and that he can walk and breathe a little bit more comfortably as a writer in these longer tales. And The Hound of the Baskervilles is an awesome novel. I'm not yet ready to say at this halfway mark that he's best in the novels and that that's the way I like them the best, but I totally take on board your opinion and uh, credit you for it. I'll concede that. Um... Some of the novels, like The Sign of Four, for example, uh, I, I, I prefer some of the short stories that Orphan Conan Doyle wrote in The Adventures or in The Memoirs or in The Return of Sherlock Holmes over The Sign of Four, yeah. uh, personally. Uh, right. But like Study in Scarlet, Hound of the Baskervilles, those kind of epic stories and some of these short stories that he wrote as well, I think they deserve a bigger canvas and therefore more paper for that canvas. Fair enough, my friend. Well, look, just before we go, uh, and I sign off with uh, the a little snippet from the third act of Les Huguenots, 
by Mayor Beer, the opera that Holmes and Watson attend, uh, supposedly. That's what they intimate they're going to do. Let's have that uh, that sexy Hound of the Baskervilles one last time, shall we? Yes. Go for three cheers for the Hound of the Baskervilles. <laughs> and here we are. Look, pal, it's been fun. It's a great Halloween episode. I wish you the best. I look forward to coming back here for episode 12 when we begin work on the empty house. Thanks for listening, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.